Hello and welcome to For Flying Out Loud, where we continue our mission to help inspire, empower and help all of our listeners to dream bigger. Aviation is such a diverse profession and pastime, and every person that has ever taken flight will remember one or two really special moments from their aviation life, whether that's their first solo or the first time they took the grand flying. I feel so lucky to have achieved my childhood dream of becoming a fighter pilot and to have had the opportunity to experience many facets of being a pilot since my first solo way back in 1992. Today, I'm super excited to be indulging in a complete festival of everything that's cool about aviation. My two guests have some of the most diverse flying backgrounds out there and I can't wait to get stuck into learning more about them and learning more about their aviation firsts that keep on coming. So let's get started. They've flown everything from gliders to fast jets, taken part in crazy antics, setting fire to the ends of aircraft wings and trailing smoke over tens of thousands of members of the public. Today, it's a great privilege to welcome two amazing pilots to the show, one of which will need no introduction to any red, white and blue fans out there, Mike Ling, MBE, and the longest former serving member of the Royal Air Force aerobatic team, the Red Arrows, and Andy Durston, former fast jet pilot, current airline pilot and warbird pilot. A very warm welcome to you for flying out loud. How are you doing, guys? Hello, Andy. Thanks for having us on. Good to see you, Mike and Andy. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. Thanks for having us. You're welcome. Um, I'll always like to start off these podcasts by getting to know a little bit more about um, both of you and, and what really got your passion for aviation going in, in the first place. I'll start with you, Andy. What, tell me more about your early days of flying and, and what sparked your passion for aviation. Yeah, so that's, that sort of starts at a relatively young age, although it was something that didn't necessarily capture my imagination uh, at, at the time the events happened. Um, but I guess looking back on it, it maybe formed a little bit of a seed that grew in my later uh, years. So I was really lucky that my, my father was a uh, helicopter pilot uh, in, the, uh, in the Navy, uh, and he actually brought an, a helicopter to my school and uh, brought Santa Claus with him to dish out a few presents uh, <laughs> back in the day. So so that's a, a sort of bit of a standout memory that I guess looking back on probably created a bit of a seed there. That's amazing. I'm, do you know, I remember must have been around, uh, I was at secondary school, but just, so I must have been 11, and seeing a Lynx helicopter land in the playground and just being like so mega inspired by this aircraft landing, all the kids. But it was really weird because I, I sort of remember looking at it and going, I just know I'm going to do this one day. And I don't know what it was that was in me that did it. I sort of felt like I was part of it already, <laughs> but it was so much longer to go. What about any other standout moments? Can you think of any that spring to mind? Yeah, so we went off to um, a little bit later on, we went off to uh, Los Angeles on uh, Virgin 747. And my parents asked if it was possible for me to go and see the flight deck while we were flying. You could do that back then, of course. Um, Must have been bored uh, of you. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm sure the flight crew probably got bored of all the requests. But, you know, of course, back then it was... Uh, it was easy to do. So we went into the flight deck and I remember being mesmerised by the array of buttons and switches and lights in the flight deck then. And uh, actually the captain got me to, uh, to to just rotate the trim wheel slightly, which I now, the, the rudder trim slightly, which got us to move uh, left and right very slightly, which um, I thought was amazing <laughs> back then. Um, so yeah, it sort of stood out as a bit of an experience and I thought, 
I thought actually one day maybe I could do this, but again, sort of forgot about that. I've got a very short memory, so uh, so it was only later on, sort of thinking about it. It's probably just one of those things. It was another seed that that grew. And you, you've also spoke to me before the interview of a, a 007 uh, James Bond moment. What was that? Yeah, so it's uh, very cheesy. But um, so I was in the CCF at school, and uh, they brought a gazelle helicopter down once in a while from the army uh, to come and fly the kids around. And um, the second time it came, I sort of got ahead of this slightly and thought it'd be a great idea if I could whiz up to Middle Wallop and, uh, and uh, hitch a ride down with the pilot. So I, I jumped on the train and uh, he picked me up in a BMW Z3. Uh, and nice. as we called for start-up in the helicopter, uh, his call sign was actually Army 007. And I just thought oh, at yes. this point, this has got to be the coolest job in the world, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's that sounds very army actually doesn't it although <laughs> although james bond james bond was navy but um that's really cool so did you not want to sort of follow in your dad's footsteps and go and fly a lynx helicopter and join the royal navy no so it was slightly odd that that uh, that didn't actually manifest itself as an option until uh, i'd looked at a few other things later on actually so so the navy thing didn't really strike a chord initially um, and uh, over time, Dad moved away from flying uh, in the Navy towards the warfare side of things and driving ships, etc. So uh, aviation became less and less of a an obvious point in my my upbringing, I suppose. But but you and I um, completed a, a Royal Air Force flying scholarship, so I guess that seed was there somewhere for you when we were both. I guess you'd been the same age as me, Andy, sixteen, fifteen, sixteen, getting this flying scholarship, and. Yeah. Um, uh, how was that sort of experience for you? Did it strike you as a bit weird at the time, learning how to fly an aeroplane when you were just sort of 16 years old? Yeah, so I just turned 17 and it was genuinely looking, even looking back now, one of the best times of my life. Absolutely phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, you, you had a, I, I got dropped out, off down at Menston in Kent and um, you know met up with a bunch of guys and girls and were just left for three weeks basically to do our own thing going flying during the day and going out in the evenings um and it was an absolute ball um i was really lucky that my parents allowed me to use the money i got from the sick form scholarship as well to stay on a bit longer uh, and complete the ppl so bizarrely i had my pilot's license before i actually had my driving license so I was exactly the same. And, I, and actually, in one of the earlier episodes, I talk about uh, taking this girl. I, said, I think one of the, I wasn't very good with girls back then. And someone said, I'm still not very good now. But I offered to take this girl flying. And she said, what time are you picking me up? I said, well, I can't drive. Um, so I mean, it's really weird, isn't it? Looking back on it and being that young um, and, and flying around in an aeroplane. But it just seemed totally normal, didn't it? How, weirdly. Yeah, absolutely. But what an amazing time as well, an amazing experience. And I think I look back on, on those times with very fond memories. Um, you know, not not too much responsibility back then. Just go and have a good time. Yeah, great. Ab- absolutely. And you probably went to do your sort of selection process. I'm guessing at REF Cranwell. Would that be right? That's right for yeah. the flying scholarship. But yeah. me, being a bit of an old git, um, did my uh, flying scholarship sort of selection process at Biggin Hill, which um, leads me into into Mike, um, which is actually where you were you were brought up, Mike. So, Mike, welcome. Tell us more about your your upbringing. Yeah, exactly that. I, I grew up in Biggin Hill in Kent, so obviously with its background as a very famous fighter station, a sector station, in fact, in the Battle of Britain. It was very pivotal in the role the Royal Air Force played in the Battle of Britain. And I grew up there. And every year there was an airfare, the, the international airfare, and that drew aeroplanes from all over the world. And every year the Red Arrows displayed there. And I think I went there from just after my first birthday, right up until I actually joined the Royal Air Force. But it was 
I think my mother says was my third year. So it would have been May 1982 when I saw the Red Arrows. And she said that's when I said I wanted to be a Red Arrows pilot. So um, no way, how cool. avid, avid follower of the Red Arrows from, from pretty much two or three years old. And um, that was it, really. Just uh, followed aeroplanes. You could say I'm a, a super geek when it comes to aeroplanes. I've just loved them all my life. And, and that's what I wanted to do. So I, I set my sights pretty high, but worked hard and... And eventually got to where I wanted to be, which was was fantastic. My my grandfather was a, a Lancaster pilot in the war as well, so he was Amazing. a huge inspiration. And uh, I just really loved everything all about um, aviation, aeroplanes, sometimes helicopters, but uh, <laughs> mainly fast jets. <laughs> and so you essentially you you I guess being inspired from your granddad, being brought up at Biggin Hill, you always wanted to join the Royal Air Force. So that was just sort of a natural career path for you. And you mentioned that the, the Officer and Air Crew Selection Centre, as it's known, was at RAF Biggin Hill. So whenever you went out past the, the Air Force Station, you always saw you know, RAF guards on the gate, people in uniform walking around. You'd actually see the, the candidates. So you may well have seen you, actually, Andy, turning up. <laughs> Probably did. You'd off. have been about three and I'd have been 16. <laughs> <laughs> turning up on the bus from Bromley South Station and uh, and getting ready to go That's through the, the paces at the Selection Centre. In fact, when I was, uh, must have been about 10 and RF Biggin Hill was closing and the selection centre was moving to Cranwell. We actually got invited up as a class to go and take part in all of the aptitude tests. So we went up to the, oh, really? the, uh, RF, oh. up to the RAF base, went through the selection centre and did all the, you know, can you, can you use the joystick to keep the dot on the line and use your feet to do the same thing and hand-foot coordination tests. So it, it was really just being embedded among the Royal Air Force that, that inspired me to, to do what I wanted to do. And and you did go on to join the Royal Air Force, and that's actually where you and I first met back in 1999, which has gone frighteningly quickly. <laughs> but we met on our elementary flying training course, flying fireflies out of Cranwell, which again, like Andy was saying, I mean, all of these early stages were just so awesome because there's so little responsibilities. You're just with your mates, flying aeroplanes, going out for a few beers, <laughs> you know, just it was just such a great environment. And I've still got a little uh, firefly print uh, mic, which has got, a little comment written on. Do you remember what you wrote on it? Oh, uh, <laughs> from you. It was it, it was probably quite derogatory, wasn't it? No. <laughs> <laughs> For anyone listening out there, uh, if you'd heard the pre-recording banter, <laughs> you'd have realised there was some <laughs> derogatory banter coming my way. But it's it's probably not banter. Um, no, it was. Uh, you can be my wingman any time. Oh God! So I actually, didn't say I think that. I'm going. Oh no. I, <laughs> no! No way! I think someone maybe yeah. someone else wrote that and put my name next to it. <laughs> well, I'm going to take you up on it one day, uh, particularly when we start talking about what happened uh, just last month later on in the podcast. Um, Andy, it seems like me and Mike obviously had this sort of laser beam style approach to joining the military. But interestingly, as we said earlier, none of your military connections led you to apply to join the armed forces. Instead, I guess maybe partly inspired by your jumbo jet uh, rudder trim turning aeroplane exercise, you elected to apply to the British Airways Cadet Scheme back in 2001. Um, how far did you get with that process and why? Yeah, so I think I kind of moved away from aviation a little bit. I kind of almost just finished that flying scholarship, did my PPL, and I didn't think about aviation then for about 18 months, I reckon, uh, while I finished uh, school and, and A-levels and so on. Um but after that, I applied to the British Airways scheme, as you as you suggested. Uh, and unfortunately, that's when, of course, the uh, horrific uh, incidents of 9-11 happened. And immediately they pulled that scheme. So I'd got uh, part of the way through completing that application process and, uh, and it, it got suspended before I got a chance for them to say no. So, um, yeah, that was a bit of a pause, really, on, on that 
side of life and um, chose to uh, to take up an engineering gap year instead. Okay. So what did you do during that year? Where were you working? Uh, so I was sponsored. I was quite lucky. I was sponsored by the uh, Ministry of Defence to go and do like a general engineering gap year prior to going to university, which had us doing all sorts of bits and pieces. Um, really, again, great fun. Uh, 40 odd of us on this course, all kind of living uh, on campus, as it were, and having a great time. Uh, but actually a really good foundation from the engineering side of life as well. And you did go on to study, it was electronic engineering, wasn't it, at Southampton? Um, and uh, quite a tough degree, any any engineering degree. And I said, I did aeronautical. What did you do, Mike? Were you, did you do an engineering degree? Or no, I, you wouldn't have done, would you? No, I was, uh, straight, I was straight out of school. Straight from A levels into, yeah, into of course. the RAF. Yeah. Yeah. And do you know, it's really interesting because I get so many um, messages, particularly on social media, from young people wanting to get into aviation. And they're all saying, you know, do I need to go to university? Do I need to be an A-star student? And uh, quite honestly, for me, the answer is no. Here we are. We've got Mike, who's gone on to have an amazing career, didn't go to uni. We've got me. I got. I think I got a C in my GCSE maths and I think I got a D in my, um, my A-level maths. I did go on to do aeronautical engineering, but it's amazing, isn't it, guys, that, you know, people People get a bit bunched up about this stuff, but from well, my perspective, it doesn't I mean actually a had lot. A, I had a contact on social media this week who he's just done a flying scholarship. So he's he's doing his A-levels, but he's just done a flying scholarship. And he was asking if he should concentrate on his A-levels or should he put more effort into getting his PPL exams done and his PPL. Well, I said, no, 100% definitely concentrate on your A-levels because if you want to join the Royal Air Force, you you don't need a PPL, you need A-levels. So it's, it's quite an easy answer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You've got, you've got to get those credentials first and foremost. And and arguably, there's not really any need to have a PPL to join the Royal Air Force because they're going to train you the way they want to train you. Yeah, that's that's very true. But I don't want people to get bunched up, you know, on, on academic achievements either. I mean, obviously, you've got to get your A-levels, you want to pass your exams. But uh, so many people seem to get themselves really bunched about it. I must be an A-star student. From my perspective, I don't think that's... that's. There's so much more to, to what makes up a person, really, and how successful they are. But yeah, I think, um, yeah, PPL first, well, must be fun. We did it. That's probably where my A-levels went downhill because I was doing my PPL. <laughs> um, but Andy, you did do a bit more flying at university. I think you completed around um, 90 hours of, of flying training, a bit like me on a university air squadron. And again, just like awesome, awesome flying. But you also did a bit of other flying on the side. What, what was that? Yeah, so I uh, joined a civil service flying group, actually, while I was part of that MOD uh, organisation. And uh, alongside that, they operated at Leon. So alongside that was the gliding club, and uh, a friend of mine belonged to both, and kind of took me over to the gliding club one day, and and yeah, just just sparked uh, an interest in in gliding, which uh, I saw through, uh, and and haven't really done much in the last couple of years, but certainly a good sort of sixteen, seventeen years of it, um, and actually that you know later on, that's uh, where you and I met Scrabble out in. Um, it was yeah. Uh, in Bloemfontein in South Africa, where my father-in-law runs a, uh, a, a flying outfit out there, allowing people to go and enjoy the phenomenal weather uh, for gliding out in South Africa. So um, it, it's, I, I think it's a phenomenal skill to have, actually. The uh, gliding brings out a kind of a, a bit like sailing versus powerboating. Both of them have got their skill requirements, but I think you just learn to really understand the environment you're in in gliding uh, and fly a lot more by judgment there's there's far less uh, numbers to hang your hat on you just kind of have to look out the window and get on with it so i think it's a brilliant building block block as a foundation 
Yeah, well, I only came to it later in life. So it was 2016 when we first met. And as you said, out at your father-in-law's place, Soaring Safaris. It's a great place if anyone's into gliding. And I remember thinking, I, I took off a bit before you. And I remember thinking, hey, we're off on this cross-country, a three, two or 300 kilometre flight or something. And I thought, I'm ahead of Andy. He's been gliding 16 years. Oh, I can't believe this. And the next thing I see, this little white piece of plastic <laughs> come up below me. And it just catches up with me and then disappears off to the north at about three times the speed. And I never saw you again. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> Turns out you're pretty good at that as well. Um, but this takes us around about 2001. Mike, where were you um, around 2001 time? Uh, 2001 is is when I got my wings. So I got my wings at RF Valley on the Hawk. And then uh, I was sent back to RF Linton on Ouse, which was the, the basic fast jet training base teaching on the Takana. I was sent back there as an instructor. Yeah, uh, that, was a, that was an amazing time. Because we were actually on the same initial course going through fast jet training. And then you sort of disappeared off back to Linton News. And instructors in the, um, it's really unusual, those that listen to the Best of British episode will know about this, but it's quite unusual for people to be halfway through their flying training as you were, albeit flying a hawk at this stage, and go back to being instructor. And they call them creamy instructors. Can you explain to people a bit more about what a creamy instructor is, uh, Mike? It's a bit of an unusual word. <laughs> it is a bit of an unusual word. It's, it, essentially, it comes from um, being creamed off the top, which I don't really like. So if you think about the, the milk, the, 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 best, the best bit of the milk is the cream off the top. And um, that's where the term comes from. Whether you could use that um, to describe what how good I was during flight training, I don't think you could. But essentially what happened was in it all stems from the, the first Gulf War in the early 90s when a lot of the frontline assets, instructors, aeroplanes, spares, etc. all were sent from the training world to the front line. So there was a big blockage in the in the training world. There weren't enough instructors and there was a need to backfill with a lot of student pilots so needed more instructors so what they would do is that from some of the courses they would take people who had been performing pretty well in some regard they would take them back to be instructors for their first tour so rather than going straight to the front line as an operational tour they would be instructors and that's what happened to me I was sent back to Linton. I know, and I've, I, I was instructed by creamy instructors, and it's really odd because, as you were, you'd have been what about twenty-two years old now as this creamy instructor, and yeah, you've got I, someone who's potentially younger. It, it was I was younger than most, in fact, because um, certainly on a lot of courses, they they kind of went in fits and starts with uh, graduates. You're talking about university, and if you've been on a university air squadron, if you've been on a university air squadron, you arrived having done your elementary flying training already. Therefore, you'd come straight out of university and go straight to Linton if you'd been stream fast yet. So I was 22. A lot of the guys were turning up at 22, 23, um, sometimes even older. And it was that great. Was me. <laughs> uh, what, what was great about it was that I actually lived in the mess at Linton as well. So it meant that yeah, you could you could work together, but also you could you could go and socialise together as well. And I've still got friends I stay in touch with now that had been my students. That um, yeah, they'll be lifelong friends. It's, it's really good to build a rapport with them on a social and professional level. Absolutely. And um, it just, you know, the flying we're doing, it's not PPL style flying now. Um, at that stage, the basic fast jet training on the Takano, it's low level flying, formation flying, um, tail chasing. There's, there's, there's you know, some pretty dynamic flying going on. And there you are at 22 years old as an instructor. I think it's credit to the training system that they can take someone from no flying. And, you know, two or three years later, they're instructing people that just, in your case, 22 years old. <laughs> I wasn't good enough to become a creamy instructor but um yeah certainly instructed by creamy pilots and and very good they were too um 
Andy, so me and Mike have cracked on with our military flying training now. And, and actually, I'm, I'm flying the Hawk by this stage while you're still going through university, which is making me feel pretty old, to be honest. Uh, but you've now decided to apply to the Royal Air Force. Uh, what did the Royal Air Force say to you? Yeah, so I got my uh, uh, elementary flying training completion certificate off the University Air Squadron. Uh, and I was feeling pretty positive at this stage, thinking, right, I've got the ticket. Um, so I'll, I'll just ring up the old careers office and see what they've got for me. Uh, and it was a fairly blunt um, response, which said, uh, we're not recruiting. Sorry. And I said, no, no, no. But I've got my I've got my uh, my fast jet recommend here at the end of elementary <laughs> fast, right. uh, flying training. Uh, so surely you must be recruiting for the guys who've already started the process. And they're like, nope, sorry. Uh, so, so I felt a bit dejected then. So uh, it was only then, actually, that I, um, I decided to, to call the Navy careers office up. And uh, uh, they, they were recruiting at the time. So that, that kind of uh, defined the next uh, sort of seven or eight years of my career, I guess. Eventually joining the master race of Navy Lovies, <laughs> but both of us, at least, at least they were uh, honest with you. I think with me, they just told me I was a bit rubbish at the Air Force, and that's why I didn't get in. <laughs> so, but there we are, both, both joining the uh, the Royal Navy. Uh, and if I wasn't feeling old enough by this stage, I think this is around about 2004. So you're applying now to join the Royal Navy and I'm on the front line flying to see how we are. Now I'm now seriously feeling old. Uh, Mike, you've you've completed your instructional tour now, though, and you're now heading out to Canada. Um, it's like you don't want to hang around with your mates or something. <laughs> so why did you head on out to Canada? Well, that that was um, a really interesting part of the sort of early 2000s when I mentioned before about there being a, a bit of a blockage in the training pipeline. We, we physically couldn't get enough students through both Royal Air Force and Royal Navy through the training system to get to the front line. So the NATO yeah. flying training course was was designed out in Canada. In Cold Lake, it uh, was the phase four, so the, the tactical weapon stage, if you like, of flying training. So every year, the Royal Air Force sent 20 students to go and live in Canada for six to nine months to do the the flying training, which was great because it was on the new version of the Hawk, or back then it was a new version right. of the Hawk anyway. It was uh, the Hawk 115, which was a sort of a digital version of the Hawk. And um, it was a really fantastic experience. Uh, kids were going out there. I say kids. Uh, yeah, youngsters were going out to learn to fly with yeah. people from uh, obviously Canada, Italy, uh, Singapore. Um, we had uh, students from trying to think where else there would be but uh, yeah there were lots of nato countries sending students there and it was a fantastic course brilliant uh, brilliant airplane to fly and a very good lead in then to fly the the cockpits of typhoon and later versions of the tornado yeah and because i uh, the 115 and obviously i was i think you'd have done some flying on the t1 but it was a pretty basic airplane the whole t1 it's about the same as the red arrows fly <laughs> pretty pretty basic everything all the navigation's done by map and stopwatch um surprisingly accurately um but uh, quite an old airplane not a particularly good lead into a lot of frontline aircraft but it sounds like the hawk 115 and certainly the new hawk t2 is a much better lead in which is what we're trying to achieve really isn't it getting people to the front line and being as like competent and as quickly as possible um but you did then join the front line it went on to fly the tornado f3 at last and i feel like someone's catching up with me because this is now a historic airplane just like the sea out here is um how was flying the tornado f3 mike i'll be totally honest with you i got back from canada and got and got rolled i suppose if you like so streamed you, you could either go at the time you could either go jaguar harrier tornado gr4 or tornado f3 they were the four frontline choices uh 
but the typhoon was just about to come into service. So I even yeah. offered at the time, I said, look, how about I go back to Linton to do another year as an instructor? Um, if I can then go and be one of the first students to learn to fly the typhoon. Uh, unfortunately, the RAF told me uh, that wasn't going to be an option. But what they wanted at the time was was former qualified flying instructors on the on the typhoon eventually. So they wanted to send some people to the Tornado F3 to go and get the air defense experience with a view then to being qualified flying instructors on the typhoon. So I got sent to the F3 and I didn't go kicking and streaming by any account. It was a something that I was very excited about going to do. It was a brilliant aeroplane. It was super fast. It had a really capable weapons platform by the by the time I joined it. You know, it had a bit of bad press back in the day with the, the radar and the way that the, the missiles worked. And But by the time I arrived in the sort of 2005 timeline, it was really quite potent. And, and on exercises around the world, it held its own. And it was a lot of fun. Yeah, well, I did a fair bit of work, you know, just for practice against Tornado F3s. There's a bunch of bunch of fun, actually. Big aeroplane, especially next to a little Sea Harrier. Uh, I think I've got a photo somewhere sat next to one, and it's it's a it's a big jet. The Tornado oh, it's F3. A beat. And well, I, I, those... I remember going from the Tucano to the Hawk, and you look at the size of the Hawk compared to Tucano, you think that's massive. Yeah. But then you go from a Hawk to a Tornado, and it is just a ridiculous size aeroplane. It's it's a big beast. Yeah, I yeah. think the max takeoff weight was about twenty five tons. By the time you put big fuel really? tanks and weapons on, it was about 25 tonnes. So, yeah, big, big beast. What were some of the coolest things about it? Swing wing, is that pretty cool? Afterburners? You said, I've never, uh, never had anything with like that sort of stuff. No, you can actually go supersonic as well. So you could go above the speed of sound, which yeah. is something you've probably never done. Um, you probably, probably go faster in your airliner than you did in the Harrier, I think. Um, no, we, uh, yeah, it was, it was swing wing. Swing wing was a bit of a pain because it actually, would you believe, got designed with automatic wing sweep. So that the aeroplane computer, and when I say computer, it's about as powerful as a, as a, you know, a, a scientific calculator at best. Um, but it would automatically sense the speed, the angle of attack, and it would move the wings and operate the, um, the high lift devices, so the slats and flaps and things. Uh, the Air Force, in their wisdom, took all of that out. So it didn't have any automatic in, in when it flew in the Royal Air Force Service. So that so, just increases the coolness factor, doesn't it? Well, then you get I, the, the, the idea was that if the computer keeps moving the wings, then it will... Um, it will increase the fatigue life. So the aeroplane will be out of fatigue life sooner. <laughs> what they didn't right. count on was the fact that pilots would go really into cool combat. It's really cool to smooth the lever loads. <laughs> you, you well, you'd forget to move it. So you'd end up overstressing the aeroplane when you go through a certain speed where the wings had to be back or you know whichever. So I think they probably did more damage by taking the automatics out. But hey, that's not a topic of another time. But it was, it was great. Swing wing, like you say, which was cool because yeah. you, could, you could run in super fast into a fight, go into the fight and then move the wings forward. And then you could you could turn quite tightly nowhere near you know sort of f-16 or typhoon or f-35 standard but you you could turn tightly and and have good fun and what was really good was you had another pair of eyes in your navigator or your weapon systems yeah, operate officer in the back so you know i could look one way he could look another of course in your sea harrier you had one pair of eyes you were padlocked on something someone's behind you where you didn't have that ability which was really quite useful Absolutely. Uh, it's funny, it just brings it all back, talking about that, uh, rocking up at the fight and the merge and all that sort of stuff and turning. And yeah, the Tornado F3 and the Sea Harry weren't particularly good turning aeroplanes. Remember some of the more modern fights, like F-15, you know, just uh, F-15E just like turning on the spot. It was weird to see. It just didn't look like it was an aeroplane almost um, when you were going to combat. But um, yeah, that must have been really cool. And um, Andy, you're sort of like playing catch up a little bit now um, with me and Mike. I I've actually left the Royal Navy in 2006. Um, and you're in elementary flying ultimately on your way uh, to the path of flying the Harrier GR9 which is 
for anyone that's not got through military fast jet training, for anyone that's not then gone to fly fast jets and then gone on to fly something like the Harrier GR9, it's, it's just all of it is super demanding. And uh, I was, you know, right in my maximum capacity limit trying to learn how to fly this thing. But you're not. <laughs> you're on the side. You're flying Yak-52s, self-teaching yourself um, formation aerobatics and... Um, and, and and displaying at air shows. In fact, one down at Royal Naval Air Station Yeovilton. I think that was your first public display down at Yeovilton. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So it started off because I'd already done elementary flying training that I had a bit of an advantage, to say the least, over uh, some of my course mates. Um, so that first bit wasn't uh, wasn't quite as taxing as it is designed to be, uh, having already completed it effectively once over. Uh, in fact, I think to date I've actually learned to fly four or five times now from scratch uh, so you'd think i'd be half decent at it by now um but yeah the yak uh, i owned a share in the yak 52 for a while and um a couple of friends had similar aircraft and, and we would sort of uh, work up towards ultimately formation aerobatic sort of displays um but that first display i was mentored by a chap called john Beatty into uh, display oh, yeah. flying um uh, and he's he's taken a lot of people into uh, into display flying. Actually, um, I really appreciate his time and his guidance. Um, and that uh, first public display uh, was actually in front of about twenty five thousand people at Yeovilton Air Day. Um, wow! And it it was a massive on crowd wind. Uh, and for anyone who who displays aircraft, they'll know there's um, a line which you cannot go past. Uh, otherwise, you get uh, into all sorts of trouble. Um, in order to protect the crowd um, and so for every manoeuvre that you try and undertake uh, the wind is trying to push you across that no-go line uh, which made it pretty challenging so uh, yeah I, I, to say I was nervous was uh, an understatement um, but it, it was an amazing experience. Uh, yeah, 50 that's a pretty cool aeroplane as well. I, I've always fancied flying one of those things. I think I had a habit of the wheels collapsing on them or something. Uh, someone told me that or maybe they're just frightened me about them. Is that right? <laughs> well, there's no, um, there's no system to prevent you putting the wheels up on the ground. And because they go forwards and backwards in their travel, then actually you can literally just select the wheels up and it just goes, OK, oh, right. and then you end up on your belly. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, there's... <laughs> Uh, definitely, definitely um, worth checking which lever you're about to move before you do. But it's a, it's a great training aeroplane. It's very honest. Uh, it's got a very predictable departure from normal flight. Um, but it, w- it will bite you if you push it to the edge, but it gives you plenty of warning. So it's a really good training. And talking platform. of aeroplanes that bite, you actually then sold this Yak-52 and bought a Pitts, a special Pitts S1, little single seat pocket rockets um to do more display flying so I, I guess that's then giving you a bit of tailwheel experience would that be your sort of first experience of doing some tailwheel flying yeah i mean i actually gained my tailwheel uh, rating if you like or endorsement on uh, flying tugs at the gliding club um and the the pit special is not really something you want to start on as your first tailwheel type it's pretty <laughs> skitty on the ground um yeah. and mike was just talking there about you know sort of going up from uh, a relatively small airplane and climbing up the ladder to uh, to massive airplanes uh, i've actually gone the other way and and got into something <laughs> yeah. you can pretty much tuck under your arm and walk off with um it, but it was an amazing uh, again a, an amazing airplane to fly um i, I owned that for a while uh, my first flight was not designed to actually be my first flight in it um 
I was going to do some right. high speed taxis <laughs> and then uh, and then basically go back and, and do the takeoff. Uh, but I decided it was so terrifying being that fast on the runway that I just needed to get it off the ground. Um, so uh, so I went flying and spent the next half an hour really enjoying myself, but also thinking, Christ, I've got to land this thing now. Um, so, that sounds yeah. like every flight I had in a sea hurry. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And so, but that's amazing. So there you are. You're, you're going through Navy flying training. You're flying a Harry. You're displaying the Act 52s, buying Pitts S1s, flying those. Mike, you're doing pretty averagely in your career as well. I'm sure that there's no introduction um, required to all your avid followers. In 2008, what happened for you? 2008 was my, that was my first year in the Red Arrows. So uh, 2007, amazing. I. I got to um, the stage where I had all the necessary credentials to apply to join the Reds. So I'd had my 1500 hours. I'd got my above average assessment and uh, I was essentially had completed my frontline tour on the tornado. So I was then eligible to apply to join the Reds. And, and I did, I put the application in. Uh, I'll be honest with you. I didn't think I had any chance of getting in at that stage. I just wanted to let the, let the team know that I was interested and for them to start reading my CV. And I was hopeful that I might get in, uh, in, invited for the selection but uh, I'd had no high hopes at all but I did got invited for the selection and um, yeah I, I actually got got in on my first go which was which was pretty amazing that's I really unusual it. isn't it um it, yeah, it's not I, what it's not massively unusual it's um so in my time since then I've seen you know, quite a number of people actually get in on their first attempt but some people get in on their second third um sometimes fourth attempt but I was very lucky and got really? in on my first Awesome. Well, I spoke to um, squadron leader Martin Perty, who you'll know obviously from the, from the time on the team, he's just uh, left as Red One. And we spoke about the sort of selection process and how difficult it is. He said, you know, not, not everyone gets in on the first attempt because it is such a demanding selection process. And some people get a bit carried away with the process, sort of having too much fun, I guess. Well, it would be fun, wouldn't it? But I guess there's, a, there's an objective there. And um, it's, it's, more, yeah, it's more just in trying to be yourself. You know, you've got to, you, you can't yeah. spend, it's a whole week. You can't spend a week pretending to be somebody else you've got to be yourself and it almost comes across as you can see one person is very different from day to day and that means they're obviously not being themselves so that that's what it's all about and that's why it's not just a two or three hour process you know you want to see almost all ends of the spectrum for for an individual to see if they're going to be suitable for the team so yeah that's that's yeah because uh, it's so much more than flying isn't it the red arrows it's so much uh, you know it's there's an ambassadorial role there's there's traveling around the world it's and a tempo is non-stop isn't it so i guess you, you can't be someone else because under that sort of pressure and it is it must be great fun but would that be true to say mike I'd, it's it definitely is uh quite pressured certainly from a flying perspective in terms of the learning curve you've got to learn a lot and very quickly to get to the standard required um yeah but then for when you're out of the cockpit you know you're you've, you're constantly on show wherever you are in a red suit yeah. you're always on show so you, you've got to be the ambassador as you say you, you are representing the royal air force you are representing the united kingdom so you've got to be on top Absolutely. form everywhere you go yeah, must be amazing to do, but also amazingly challenging as well for, for all sorts of reasons. But you've, not only have you managed to get in on your first attempts, uh, fast forward to sort of 2009 and you become part of the prestig uh, prestigious rather uh, synchro pair, which is like completely awesome. Um, and you must have just been loving the fact that you've been selected to now be part of the synchro pair. But I also brought uh, a challenge for you. What, what happened around that time, Mike? Well, yeah, Synchro Pair are almost a team within a team. There are two pilots from the nine display pilots who do the head-to-head, -head, sort of daredevil flying, that, that's impending 
impending collision where uh, you are just narrowly avoiding each other and then it impresses the crowd. I think it was a, the bit of banter on the team was that um, uh, there were seven who hated them, but millions loved them, I think was the uh, the, the way that the Synchro <laughs> pair reviewed around the rest of the Red Arrows. But I was, I was selected for that in my second year in the Reds, which was 2009. And then automatically after being Synchro wingman, you become the Synchro leader. So in 2010, I was Red Six, the, the leader of the Synchro pair, which is a huge privilege. And part of that privilege yeah. was actually going back to having seen the Red Arrows in Biggin Hill and my I had two schoolboy dreams growing up watching the Red Arrows one and watching the air show at Biggin Hill uh, one of which was to be a Red Arrows pilot and display at the Biggin Hill air show which unfortunately I didn't get to do in my first year because we were on tour in, in the States so when, when the air show happened but in my second year you know, the icing on the cake was now I was part of the synchro pair so it was it was even better Amazing. So, um, but then I became the synchro leader in 2010 got through most of the training we got up to our nine ship standard and then march we headed off to our mediterranean training camp in cyprus which happened every year my homeland yeah it was uh it was a lovely place to go we used to spend sort of six seven weeks out there every spring to get the to put the polish on the display on the way out to cyprus we actually stopped in a a, a base in crete or on crete um which was called castelli and we'd only been there a couple of days when we were doing a practice and unfortunately we had um uh, we got a little bit closer than we should have done. I talked earlier about the this sort of um, view of an impending collision, where it wasn't an impending collision yeah. in this case. We actually we actually had a head-on collision. Wow, and I and I remember that vividly. Obviously, I'd known you a long time, and then heard the news, and um, uh, you uh, had to eject out of the aircraft. The other aircraft was damaged, but managed to carry on flying. But it was, I mean, you're very close to the ground there with a huge closure rate. So how high would you have been? What sort of closure rate at the point where you impacted the other aircraft, Mike? But the manoeuvre was uh, what was known as the opposition barrel roll, which meant you point towards each other and then you, you cross in front of each other to then reverse to do a, a barrel roll and meet at the top of the barrel roll. Um, it was actually at the crossing point at the bottom. So at this point, we were each doing 330 knots. So was that about 370-ish miles an hour? just under 400 miles an hour. We're both at 100 feet above the ground. Um, our last wow. input was to actually to push. We both pushed. So we, we knew we were lower than 100 feet. Um, my canopy had shattered after my wingman's tail had hit my canopy. So it hit about 18 inches above my head. Um, and his tail wow. hit my, his tail plane hit my wing. Um, but my canopy had shattered, you know, a lot of noise. I knew I'd pushed and I knew I was low. So I didn't have a lot of thinking time. So I just pulled the ejection seat handle. And, uh, and and rode the Martin Baker chair out of the out of the jet, um, which knocked me out unfortunately because uh, my head got hit back against the head box, which knocked me out. Um, my parachute didn't open properly because I was quite close to the the fireball as the jet hit the ground, so the parachute didn't inflate. So I hit the ground unconscious and faster than I should have done, um, and damaged damaged my legs and dislocated my shoulder. But I, I came to soon after hitting the ground. But obviously, my first thought then is, right, where's where's my wingman? Where, where's Monty? This is uh, this is not good. Yeah. Um, uh, somebody you know, within a couple of minutes, people were on the scene, and and they told me that he was still airborne. And I said, you're lying to me. Wow. Don't, you know, don't don't lie to me. You know, I've just we've just <laughs> we've just flown into each other. Yeah. Don't lie to me. This How is, is not he? A joke. How is he? Yeah. And then I heard him on the radio. Yeah. The guy the guy that came over had a handheld radio, and I heard Monty talking on the radio, which was the, the most amount of relief I think I've ever had in my life. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And um, obviously, any sort of accident, like that, any incident, particularly one as dramatic as that, I mean, that sounds horrifically scary. Um, would that? Uh, how much of an impact did that have on you after that event? I guess as the initial process of, of getting yourself fixed, but did that sort of affect you psychologically? Do you think after that accident? 
Well, what, originally, I didn't know that my injuries were as bad as, uh, as they turned out to be. Um, as in, I didn't have any pain in my legs at all. It was all in my shoulder, which was, I thought, an easy fix because they just popped the shoulder back in and then I, I could crack on. And I, I honestly thought I'd be flying again within a couple of weeks. Uh, it then transpired right. after I got aeromedically evacuated back to the UK that my knees were quite badly damaged and I needed uh, a fair few operations on my knees to, to sort them out. So uh, it was then that I you know, hit home that, I wasn't going to be in a cockpit anytime soon. This was going to be a very long process. It turned out that I'd spent a month in hospital, three months in a wheelchair, and then I didn't actually get my full medical category back until about a year after the accident. So it took a long time. Wow. But just to, to put it yeah. into sort of perspective from a mental health point of view, yes, I'd, I'd had this injury, you know, I'd had my schoolboy dream taken away from me, albeit out of a three-year tour, I only had six months left to do. So I didn't get to do the display season because of the injuries, but... I'd done two and a half years already. I'd done some fantastic yeah. flying. I'd achieved that goal of displaying the red arrows at Biggin Hill. You know, I'd, 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 yeah. I had my life was the important thing. You know, I was still alive. I was yeah. injured. But what was really quite um, home hitting was I was in a military ward in a hospital in Birmingham. And this was in 2010. So you know, this is the height of the a campaign in Afghanistan. And every yes. other bed in the ward I was in, every other bed had somebody who had a life-changing injury. They'd lost at least one limb or you know, they were paralyzed or whatever it was. And I had all my limbs. They were, they were pretty damaged, but they'd been fixed and it was now just a recovery process. So I needed just to just get on with my life and stop moping because you're still alive. You've still got all your limbs. These guys aren't, aren't going to have the same life. But after a bit of fixing, I was, I was back to normal. So that really was what got me through. If I'd gone to a normal ward, I probably would have felt sorry for myself and it would have had a very detrimental effect on, on me and how I felt. But being surrounded by those people who were so inspiring as well. Um, Absolutely. Who I then met actually yeah. at Headley Court, which was the Defence Rehab Centre. I spent a number of weeks there and they, watching these guys and girls, you know, that had, had limbs missing and seeing what they could do and how focused they were on just trying to get back Inspirational. to it. Uh, it was It was a real inspiration. So that, that was really my kick up the backside to say, right, do not feel sorry for yourself. You, you cannot feel sorry for yourself because you will get back to normal and you will go back to flying. And that's, that's how I got through yeah. it. Yeah, thanks for that, Mike. Thanks for being so honest. And what a, you know, crazy, scary experience, but also an inspirational one. And, and talking about these amazing servicemen and women that do, you know, tragically often end with life-changing injuries. And from my perspective, you know, the whole country owes a debt to these people that um, I think we could do a lot more for, if I'm honest with you. Um, Andy, there must have been something in the air, um, no pun intended, uh, around that time, because 2010 also brought uh, the end of the Harrier Force in the UK. Uh, and you, you were on the course, um, but of course, didn't make it to the front line as a result. How did that feel for you? Yeah, pretty, uh, well, I was pretty gutted, if I'm honest. Um, that course, is, uh, as, as you know, Scrabble, is, is tough. Um, I found that course really hard. Are you just f clinging on with your fingertips on every trip, really? Uh, because you just want one more trip just to give you a bit of comfort and they won't give it to you. It's on to the next thing straight away. Uh, so, it. so, you know, having having got to the point where you kind of, um, I guess I was about 80 or so percent of the way through the course, uh, I was actually strapped in an aeroplane, um, as was always the case. You're always late because somebody put an inject in to deliberately make you late to try and make a time on target you couldn't realistically achieve and see which bits of the uh, of the checks you could kind of cut off in order to, to, to make the goal. Um, and so I was just busy trying to sort that out. I got a call 
saying that we needed to return into the uh, to the squadron building, and I immediately dismissed it. When you've got to be joking, I'm already working at max capacity here, trying to get to the Simon <laughs> target. So um, uh, they said, "Oh, we, d- we don't know what's wrong, but basically, all all Harrier flying has been suspended. Um, so we'll, we'll, you know, come back in and we'll sort it out." And that was it. That was the last time I stepped uh, foot in a Harrier, as it were. Um, and having worked so hard to get there, it was pretty galling then to, to have the rug pulled from under one's feet. And it did take me a while to get over that. Um, so uh, I, one of the problems was because in the Navy, that was the only uh, fixed wing flying really of note, certainly frontline fixed wing flying that was going on. There was no um, alternative at the time. And it came as a bit of a, an unexpected blow. I don't think anyone was expecting that. Um, so unlike potentially in the Air Force where there, there was a uh, there were plenty of other streams they could move people to, um, the, the Navy guys ended up with a lot of waiting around trying to work out what was going to happen next. Because ultimately they wanted to retain a fixed wing carder to move forwards to, um, you know, the F-35 being on the uh, on the front line in years to come. Uh, so it sort of became apparent that uh, that wasn't really going to work out over the next year or so. So I, I sort of... Um, actually just ended up doing a bit of time down at Portsmouth Naval Gliding Centre as the chief flying instructor there. But whilst I was also looking at my options um, going uh, going forwards. So, uh, yeah, that, that's kind of where I got to in 2012. It, it doesn't compete with uh, any of Mike's stories, but um, yeah. <laughs> but you're back to back to gliding um, and it sort of came sort of full circle again, having applied to join the British Airways cadet scheme back in 2001 when 9-11 happened. Uh, you're in 2014 and you're actually on a, another flying training course. You yeah. must have, as you said, completed more training courses um, on your way to fly the uh, Airbus A320 with a, with a big um, UK air, airline. Yeah, um, so, so I joined, so I started up this... Um, uh, process this cadet course and it was really um I, I had to kind of you know swallow the pill to start with basically because you have to understand that you're starting again from day one there's going to be no allowances made and you just have to get on with it that's you know effects of controls one effects of controls two you know all the way through um the ground school is uh, is pretty tough i think it's a lot of knowledge required for the airline transport pilot's license i don't think any of it's particularly difficult or at least i didn't find it difficult it's just the volume of information to retain uh particularly knowing that a lot of it is actually not going to be of any relevance at all so you're learning stuff just for the sake of passing the exams um but there's some amazing guys on my course uh, and I feel really privileged to have been a part of that group. Uh, guys that have been city traders and you know, national tennis players, um, teachers, <laughs> engineers. Like everyone seemed to have had a sort of previous career uh, of, of some description. Um, and it was really humbling to be kind of involved with such a, a bunch of overachievers, I guess. Um, so yeah, that that was uh, that that was me sort of two years out to go and do that full time uh, commercial integrated course uh, as a sponsored student. I was very fortunate, um, and then onto the uh, onto the type rating, which I can only describe as drinking out of a fire hydrant, uh, trying to learn yes. uh, company SOPs. The Airbus is an incredibly complex aeroplane, and trying to learn all of that when you have no idea about even how routine commercial operations work uh, in a very short space of time i think it was was it like two and a half three weeks or something it's uh, absolutely incredible 
Yeah, it's 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 tough, isn't it? Actually, a good bit of advice I sort of give to anyone that uh, one one bit of advice I give to people that uh, come to Flight Deck Wingman for support. I say never turn down a free type rating because yeah. you never know when you'll need one. But of course, on the back of that comes having to complete a whole load of type ratings, and uh, I've completed. I've flown the Airbus three twenty, twenty one, three thirty, and the seven five seven six. Now the seven eight seven. I did all those type ratings and joined the airline world in the space of nine years. It was uh, that was quite a lot as well. But it's all good fun, isn't it? It's all good fun. And I think that um, multi-engine piston instrument rating as well, and I, I you know, it's just, yes. it's just a real challenge. So, you know, I, I guess I've probably had quite a lot more experience of flying than most people that get to that stage. And I don't know how you found this, Mike, but I just, you know, particularly with steam-driven instruments, you know, with dip error on the NDB needles and a train went past and wandered you off in the wrong direction. And, <laughs> you know, it's all just, I found I was working hard at that. Uh, that was some of the hardest flying I think I'd done was just the, the, when we Absolutely. when I did it last year, it was uh, a condensed course and I had two weeks to get the flying done, which was the multi-engine piston rating and the instrument rating all all in a one which, um, you know, having not done any of that sort of flying really, um, it was it was quite a steep learning curve, but it, it was good fun. I do enjoy a challenge and that's certainly what it was. Yeah, it is a challenge. I remember I teed at my um, my mates back at Yeovilton because I was doing my instrument rating exam out of Exeter, and we were going to go fly to Westlands, which is near Royal Naval Air Station, Yeovilton. So I thought I'll phone up the air traffickers and just tee them up to give me an easy ride. And I must have changed shift or something. <laughs> they gave me two different beacons to try and navigate to. The weather was awful. There was icing on the wings. I was totally maxed out. I just find it amusing how we've got sort of three, um, you know, fast jet pilots here who all found the IR one of the hardest things they did. So if there's any um, aspiring pilots out there going through flying training at the moment, uh, you're doing absolutely fine, even if you're finding it hard. Yeah, just um, stick with it. It'll be fine. It'll be <laughs> and around this time as well, you, you disappeared out to the states to buy an aircraft with one of your mates, uh, John Gowdy. Yeah, that was so. That was a really good, uh, a good shopping trip. Actually, uh, we, we sort of got introduced by a mutual friend. We'd, we'd known of each other for quite a long time, and we decided we need to put a display team together. So uh, we we sort of narrowed down the aircraft type that we wanted in order to be able to achieve what we wanted with it, uh, and we settled on. Um, a couple of uh, Vans RV4s, which are kit-built aircraft. Um, and we, they, I mean, the Vans aircraft series, every aircraft's a compromise, right? I mean, if you want to do ultra-high energy aerobatics, then you're probably going towards, you know, an extra, an extreme, a pit or something. But they're not, you know, they're, they're quite compromised in other areas. So the, the Van series of aircraft have uh, an amazing compromise across all of the range of activities you can do with an aircraft you know cruising speed cheap to maintain um uh, they can get in and out of short strips and do aerobatics so um we looked around um they're in really high demand so we decided we needed to go to the states to buy the aircraft so we did we narrowed uh, the, the options down before we went uh, teed up some bits and pieces and ended up pretty much visiting all four corners of the states in the space of four days um and yeah settled on a couple and had them shipped back to the uk um as you do <laughs> yeah so so this is the point at which i'm expecting you to give me some banter about what we chose to do with the airplanes <laughs> well oh, oh, it's not it's not banter i'm going to call it craziness actually because you you decided to um what can anybody describe well, it pretty much is i think put some fireworks on the end of the wingtips and set fire to them and then go flying which just sounds like lunatic behavior to me so you tell us a bit more about that andy 
Yeah, so uh, so John had been involved in another team called the uh, the Twister Aerobatic Display Team, um, and essentially we decided we wanted to modify these RV4s and put uh, pyrotechnics on the wingtips uh, and perform twilight or dusk displays, uh, and it leaves a trail of sparks behind the aeroplanes that's uh, something like uh, seventy to one hundred meters long. Um, and as the, as the sun goes down, it's a pretty spectacular, uh, you know, having seen it from the outside, it's a pretty spectacular uh, sight. Uh, and the good news is that you, you, know, you don't need to worry about your flying too much because the pyrotechnics steal the show for you. Um, so, you know, that was a great adventure. We put about a thousand hours of work into the airplanes to modify them uh, and, and test them and get them ready to go. It's amazing from my perspective that the CAA have said, yeah, just sort of put his fireworks on, get going. But they, you do it and you do it safely. And, it, and I've seen the displays. Um, it is amazing to watch. And you're still doing that now, uh, flying the fireflies. Yeah, absolutely. I remember when we started doing it, actually, my old man said to me, he said, so you want to do night formation, low level aerobatics with fireworks on your wingtips? Have you really thought about this? Um, so, but no, it is, uh, you know, the, the sort of level of trust that goes into formation flying and, and, and Lingy can attest with this with, uh, with you know, the, the red arrows there is the, uh, the amount of trust that goes into each other, but particularly into the leader to, to, to make it work right is, uh, is huge. Uh, and even more so, I think, with the uh, with the sort of fireworks or pyrotechnics, because it's so bright that actually you you can end up pretty disorientated uh, as the as the wingman. So um, yeah. yeah, we we get on extremely well um, and have a great time flying uh, in that team. Wear sunglasses, that'll help, won't it? <laughs> Maybe while the fireworks are going, not with the rest of the time. Yeah. Meanwhile, Mike, um, I hope everyone's keeping up with this. Saying it around the same time, 2014, where have you been and what have you been up to in this time? Uh, 2014, yeah. So what happened was I, I had my accident in 2010. Um, I was due to leave the Red Arrows at the end of 2010 anyway. Um, I had uh, I'd been promoted, so I'd, I'd been promoted to squadron leader and every pilot's worst nightmare, I was posted to a desk job. It was uh, it was a procurement job uh, down at um, Abbey Wood, which is the sort of defence procurement centre, and I was the subject matter expert for the for the new military flying training system for the replacement basic fast jet trainer, if you like, so the Tucano's replacement. Uh, I went down there. It was it was pretty eye opening to see what you know, the real world was like outside of flying in the Royal Air Force. Yeah. It was um, <laughs> yeah. it was it was really bizarre because I'd gone from the what is almost the closest knit team in the Red Arrows and a military team to working with civil servants and civilian contractors in a building that there were only a few of us um, in, in uniform. So I'd gone from a very close-knit military team to this very odd environment in, in a desk job. And of course, I was missing the flying because I was still grounded from my accident. So it was a bit of an odd time in my life. But once I got my medical cap back, I actually, to keep myself sane, went across and uh, started flying air cadets around in the, the Grob Tutor from St. Athens. Awesome. So South Wales, flying the Grob Tutor. And I'd, I'd been an air cadet myself and I'd flown the, the chipmunk and the bulldog, showing my age, um, as an air cadet. And I knew how much it meant to me. And um, I've done some pretty cool things in aeroplanes, especially in, in red jets. But genuinely, some of the most rewarding flying I've done has been in a Grob Tutor on a cadet's first flight or a cadet's first aerobatic flight and just seeing the reaction and seeing the look on their face because cause it just took me back to when I was doing it, when I was 13 years old, 14 yeah. years old. And I knew how, how important that was to them and, and with what they want to do with their lives. So, And that is a genuine statement. My Some of the most rewarding flying I've done has been flying those those kids around in those aeroplanes. So um, I did that for... Uh, did they know who you were? Did they know who you were then, Mike? No, no. No, I was just a guy from Abbey Wood who um, was a squadron leader in a green flying suit just 
polling around in a in a tutor. I, I didn't get to do it for very long because um, at the end of two thousand and that was two thousand and eleven. At the end of two thousand and eleven, there there was two tragic accidents in the Red Arrows, and uh, obviously I had my accident in twenty ten. In August two thousand and eleven, John Egging was sadly killed in Bournemouth, and then in three months later, Sean Cunningham was killed at Scampton when his ejection seat went off. So two very tragic accidents that happened to the Reds. That meant that the team had a bit of a shuffle round to to make good the 2012 season. And they asked me to come back to be Red 10, which is the supervisor and uh, commentator. Uh, so I went back to, to be Red 10, initially only for a couple of years. And uh, after the second, I was getting towards the end of the second year, I said, well, can you stay for another year? So do 12, 13, 14. I said, of course you can. And ended up doing getting retorn and doing another <laughs> tour, another three years on top of that. So it ended up doing six years as Red 10. So 2014, uh, was the 50th anniversary or 50th display season of the Red Arrow. So massive, massive year. In fact, rewind a little bit. 2012, we did um, uh, the display because of those two accidents was a seven ship. So uh, in the Reds history, they started as a seven. There were a couple of years in the 70s where they flew as a seven ship, but then normally a nine ship. In 2012, it was only a, a seven aircraft display, but it was a massive year for the United Kingdom. You know, the London 2012 Olympics, yeah. Her Majesty's yeah. Diamond Jubilee, they wanted nine jets over there. So uh, I was um, a good friend of ours, uh, Dave Davies, was was red eight and I was red nine. <laughs> so we were the sort of the stunt wingmen for the, the high profile fly path. So that was incredible because <laughs> what, what that meant is that we, Dave and I got to fly on the extremities of the formation over the top of the Olympic Stadium at the start Fantastic. of the Olympic opening ceremony. Over a billion people watching this on TV. And it is it's quite a heart-stopping moment when you when you put it into perspective. Of course, you're, you're focused at the time. You're not, you're just t- not taking your eyes off your formation references. Um, and to, You've just probably to make... got the same picture that um, I've seen that Dave has got at his house uh, flying over the, what was the building, the thing called? It's like, it looked like a Helter Skelter. Oh, the orbit. Yeah, <laughs> the, 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 orb, the orbit. The orbit, yeah, that was yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's the one. It was amazing. It was such a good experience. Yeah, and so you're there. You come back to to doing that, and and you must be. You are the, I believe, the longest serving member in total time on the Red Arrows, uh, Mike. Is that right? Uh, yes. So, so I done. I got to the end of my time as Red Ten, uh, which was in at the end of 2017. I'd uh, managed to convince the commandant of the Central Flying School that I only had a year left to serve. I'd already decided I was leaving the Royal Air Force. So I had one year left to do. So they kept me flying the Hawk as an examiner. Um, but then I was in a, another desk job at Cranwell as the air safety manager for the Central Flying School. So I was I was then sort of responsible for air safety of the of the Red Arrows who came under the Central Flying School. It was a desk job, but I got to still fly the Hawk. So it was kind of a nice way to see out my time in the Royal Air Force. But again, I only did that job for three months. Another sadly tragic accident in March 2018 when um, there was a, an accident at uh, John at um, uh, RF Valley, and uh, unfortunately. Uh, there was a uh, one of the engineers yeah. who was in the back of the aeroplane was killed. Yeah, an awful, awful time for the for the team. Such a close knit team, and to lose anyone, a pilot or one of the um, blues as an own. Well, it's, uh, exactly, because the the blues, yeah, you know, well, they get selected to to be what's known as circus, so the the travelling circus, the people who fly in the back of the aeroplane. So, so Red Two, for example, would have Circus Two, who is selected from one of the engineering trades. To, to be in the back of that jet. So when they transit from A to B, these guys can jump out um, and service the aeroplane so that it's ready to go, almost like the pit crew, if you like. So it was such a, yeah. a, a really amazing role, sort of the pinnacle of their careers to be selected for the circus. And and John Bayliss had been and selected for this role. And unfortunately, early on in his time flying in the back with Red 3, he 
he, he didn't get out of the jet when it crashed. So it's very sad. And it was a really yeah. tough time for the team. You know, when when a, when a pilot has an accident, a flying accident, I, mean, I don't want to belittle this, but when a pilot has a flying accident, it's almost, it, it's it's happened for for years. It's happened for decades in, in the flying world. We sort of know, don't we, that it's a likely possibility, yeah. you know. Exactly, you, yes. Uh, and, and the squadron, the yeah. squadron kind yeah. of is, is geared up to deal, not to deal with it, but to, to put processes in place. But when it's somebody yeah. who, you know, they're not, they weren't necessarily um, chosen for that role. They, 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 they'd been given this as an yeah. additional role. It was just, it was really hard hitting for, for all the boys and girls on the squadron and a really difficult time for everybody. Absolutely. Yeah, but that led to you going back again and doing some more flying with the Red Arrows. Yeah, so uh, that was how, because I was Hawk Current and at Central Flying School. Um, and this was quite late on in the training the, when the accident happened. Uh, the, the, the pilot of uh, the aeroplane, unfortunately, uh, was injured. He'd, he'd broken his leg, so he couldn't fly for a, a few months. So they asked, because I, I was Hawk Current, I'd flown as Red 3 in 2008. So it was um, quite an easy decision to put me back in the cockpit as, as Red 3. So... What that meant was that for the RAF's 100th anniversary, they had a nine ship again. So got to make the nine ship up. And you got to fly as part of the uh, 100th year anniversary as well, which is, again, another standout I, moment. Presumably. Exactly, yeah. So get, get, getting on the wing as Red 3 to, to be part of that RAF 100 celebration. So that you're talking about was the, it was 100 days after the 1st of April, which was the actual anniversary. So it was in July, I think it was July the 10th, 2018. We'd flown a standard route sort of out to the east coast of East Anglia, and then across into through Essex into London. We were at the back of a train of, um, in total, 102 aeroplanes. They wanted 100 aeroplanes to go over Her Majesty in, in Buckingham Palace. And we were at the very back, because of course, if we go at the front and we lay smoke down, no one else can see where they're going. So <laughs> that's, that's why the Red Arrows are always at the back. And um, what that meant was we were actually following directly behind a, a formation of, I think it was 22 typhoons spelling out 100. That's of course, right. we, see, we see 001 in front of us, but the, the people on the ground saw 100. <laughs> But that was amazing, yeah. And and no word of a lie from every, from the coast out to the east, over every motorway flyover and bridge, there were scores and scores of people. Yeah, you could just see. And by the time amazing. we got into London, thousands of people lining the route to see this spectacle of 102 airplanes coming over London. It was, it was a real special moment. It's something that we do really well, I think, in the UK is this sort of pageantry and everyone coming together to celebrate, you know, the the military, everything there is about, you know, everybody that serves their country and, and, and Her Majesty the Queen, of course. Um, so, Mike, how many years in total did you spend on the Red Arrows? So if you if you include the year that I didn't actually do the display because I was uh, I was injured, albeit I'd done seven months of the training. Uh, but I, I then went and joined the PR team. So I was the guy on the ground with the PR team in a red suit doing uh, all the bits of Bob. So it's 10 seasons, 10, 10 years, with the reds, which which <laughs> was, uh, good... it was good. It, yeah, it's, it's a, it was a quarter of my life. By the time I left the Royal Air Force, a quarter of my life had been in the Red Arrows. Amazing. I want to go through a few more stats. Cause I think they're really cool to hear these stats. So how many sorties in total did you fly with the Red Arrows? Oh, what was it? Roughly. Two, two, two and a half thousand, <laughs> 2,585, I think it was. I don't think I've ever been flying that many times. In, in, that was in that was in red jets. I think I flew. There were twenty nine different yeah. red jets in my time in those ten years. I flew twenty nine different red jets. Wow! How many public displays? Uh, well, it's six hundred ninety nine. I either displayed in or commentated. I'm going to recount them because it's it's got to be seven hundred, right? It, it, we'll, we'll round it <laughs> it's up. An let's, annoying, call it, let's call it's it seven hundred. But yeah, that's either commentating or actually displaying. How many countries do you think you visited in that time? Uh, that was just under 50. I think it was 46. In a red jet, I went to 46 countries. 
which was um, amazing. I'm quite proud of that stat because it. it shows it shows just how good that aeroplane is. You know, from yeah. I just <laughs> displayed in New York Harbor in 2008, and then in 2016, I was part of the formation that went all the way to China and back. So it's it's an aeroplane you can totally rely on. It's very simple. You mentioned earlier that it has no navigation aids. Um, the Red Arrows ones have a couple more navigation aids, so a VOR DME, for example, which the other Hawks didn't have. Um, and now a 1980s sort of Game Boy-esque GPS that's bolted on the top of yeah. the, uh, the instrument gaming. <laughs> Back in our day, Andy, we didn't have that. We just had, we just like nope. you said, a map and stopwatch. But now, flying the T1, they've got a a, um, a green and black screened uh, sky map GPS, which is next to useless. It shows airfields and coastlines. But um, <laughs> you can never get around the world because I've been to been to 46 countries in a red jet that using just I can't just believe those, you uh, took that thing. Yeah, to, to China. I mean, I've been to China a lot as, uh, with a day job, and uh, that's a long way to go. It's a long way to take nine aircraft. And again, you know, teamwork, just to get the aircraft there from the pilot's perspective, the engineering's perspective, the support staff. And I was chatting to Perty, you know, with the, the tour to the US last year. It's incredible to get these aeroplanes, this whole team going and doing that. What an amazing effort. I think it's, you're um, right. The, the teamwork is fantastic. It shows how good the aeroplane is. Yeah, that is just such a reliable yeah. machine for... Over forty year old aeroplane, it's very reliable. Yeah, the yeah. the uh, and then the teamwork. You know, knowing where to put the right people at the right time to to solve any problems that you might have in terms of technical problems, operational problems. That we it just seemed to work, and we did very well. We got twelve jets all the way to China without any problem at all. Getting them back proved yeah, a little bit more difficult. We got, ended up getting a couple of jets strewn all, all around the Middle East, but it's, uh, we got them all back in the end. It was it was amazing. I think experience. I had one of the guys saying, "Can you can you help me out with a?" Um, it might have been, I can't say where it was, but can you help me uh, get on an airline? We're a bit stuck here at the moment. Can you sort of get us a ticket? Can you do anything? It was a bit of, <laughs> there was a bit of like last minute calling on mates to try and try and get back to the UK. What do you think you enjoyed most? If you were to sort of say what was the thing you enjoyed most about your time on the Reds. Um. I, there are there's so much to mention you know in 10 years there are so many highlights i've already mentioned some of the flying highlights the the, the london olympics the diamond jubilee displaying at biggin hill flying over the rf 100 going to china going to new york now they, they are just a, a handful of the amazing memories i've got but the camaraderie you know they are when you when you've been in this very close-knit team and i've been very fortunate to have been in this close-knit team with 30 something different red arrows pilots and you all you form a very special relationship that that just remains. So every time you then meet up later on after you've left the team, it just like you haven't been apart almost. It's the same as yeah. as being on a squadron. A frontline squadron in the Air Force is exactly the same. Yeah, you, you, you meet up with squadron mates at a reunion 10 years down the line. It's it's no different. And that's the, what's so good about the Red Arrows is that you also bring your families into it. So when the pilots are away, the wives will get together and have a, a dinner or a night out or just, yeah, they'll stay very socially close as well. So it, it's really nice to involve the entire family. So that that's really one of the highlights was just that closeness of being a part of a very special team. Yeah, absolutely. I can see that. I mean, even as you said, frontline stuff, I felt feel super lucky to have had the experience of joining the armed forces because I can't imagine making friends like I made in the armed forces. They're still, you know, my best mates. Um, if I hadn't have had that experience, I mean, obviously it does exist in other areas of life, but certainly that camaraderie and then condensing that, distilling it down into the red arrows as well. I can totally understand why that would be one of the sort of standout memories. Really, is just that camaraderie. Commensurate with your achievements, Mike, your, your hard work and dedication to the, to the team, um, and 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 obviously working on behalf of representing the UK. 
in 2017, you were awarded an MBE, as I said at the beginning of the podcast, the New Year's Honours List. Uh, and from my perspective, uh, Mike, that is due recognition and um, well done, buddy, on, on that. Thank you very much. Um, Andy, um, around the same time now, Mike's leaving, you've been beavering away in the background. And this is probably about the same time that we were gliding out in South Africa with your father-in-law's place. I had no idea this was going on, but you'd been pottering around in something a little different. As I watch traffic, Golf Lima Fox Radio X-ray, the Spitfire 21 right. Uh, we are lining up for immediate takeoff. Visual one, the climb out for two, three. I was really, really humbled to actually get a phone call from a chap called Richard Grace. Um, I had known Richard a little bit through a mutual friend, uh, and I'd met him at, at that mutual friend's wedding back in 2012. And I missed a phone call from him. Uh, which, which actually I didn't even realise he'd left me a voicemail. So I think he rang me on the Thursday and I picked up the voicemail on the Monday. Um, and it said something like, um, you might want to give me a call, um, like, you know, fairly quickly if you can. Um, so, so he must have thought that was a bit rude that I didn't return his call. But uh, So I, I called him up and apologised and he said, oh, yeah, no worries. It was just uh, I, I wondered whether he wanted to fly my Spitfire. To which I said, um, <laughs> you must be joking. You know, that's something I've always wanted to do. So uh, please don't give me any banter about it. And he said, no, no. Um, he said, yeah, we, we, uh, we'd like you to come on board and join our team of pilots. Uh, so it was actually myself and John Gowdy who got invited to do that at the same time. Uh, so we, uh, we teed up a day and ended up uh, with, with a chap called Pete Kinsey, who has got more... Uh, I would imagine he's got more types. Certainly, I can't imagine anyone, perhaps one or two guys in the States, but uh, with with more types in their logbook than him, um, it, particularly in the Warbird uh, arena. And, and his experience is pretty much unsurpassed, I would suggest. Um, and he, he uh, basically gave us a day uh, of flying uh, out of Duxford uh, into, in late 2016 um, as a conversion onto the Spitfire. Uh, which was amazing. Uh, it really difficult to describe um, just the emotions going through uh, my brain, I suppose, on that, that day. Um, I mean, um, Andrew, you remember what it was like to fly the uh, probably the Harrier for the first time on your own. Um, absolutely terrifying, but an amazing opportunity. Um, and I, I reckon I was more nervous uh, with this Spitfire, which is... You know, family heirloom. It's a piece of history that can't be replaced. It's worth an absolute fortune. Um, and I think in total, I had about 40 minutes on the aeroplane before I, the instructor decided to have enough of that, uh, enough of that got out the back. So, um, wow. yeah, what an amazing privilege. <laughs> like... uh, and I'll be forever indebted to both uh, Richard and um, Richard's mum, Carolyn, um, who, who in, a, uh, in herself has got an amazing story as to how that became. And for anyone who hasn't, uh, read about her then uh, well worth a, uh, a look into it well I, I mean uh, to to get that opportunity I, I bet you I mean, if you'd have missed that phone call one more time and they called somebody else I don't think you'd have ever recovered from that with you presumably no uh, you know you're, you're, absolutely, you're absolutely right mate it, it was a phenomenal opportunity um, I'm very glad I answered that phone call um, and yeah it, it was um, actually, the, the training process to start with was, uh, I mean, it's ferociously expensive to uh, to operate a warbird. Uh, and so, 
it, it doesn't happen that you tend to get a lot of flying in them um, until you're actually doing something productive with it. Um, but unfortunately, you've got to get some time under your belt before you can do something productive with it. So it's a bit chicken and egg. Um, so again, it felt like a bit like you were holding on with your fingertips for a while just because of the lack of currency for the first first year, I guess. Um, but after that, it's blossomed into uh, all sorts of opportunities. So yeah, uh, one very lucky guy who's uh, realised a dream that uh, never thought I'd get the opportunity to have. Well, if you think about it, all of the flying that you've done so far, it sort of set you up nicely, really, for this opportunity. So it's no great surprise that someone of your experience and background and varied flying would be asked to do something like that. But I bet you still couldn't quite believe it. Actually, I, I, you, you owe me for waking me up last year at the Goodwood Revival. I had a bit of a hangover and uh, it wasn't a Spitfire. I think you were flying a Mustang. And I was feeling pretty sorry for myself the next morning. These three Mustangs flew over the top of top of my bedroom. So my, my mate lives right by the circuit there. So... Um, yeah, I know you've gone on to fly a few more. <laughs> uh, my pleasure. I think it's probably you who owes me a beer. <laughs> yeah, new X-ray, final with the gear down to all right. Golf with your X-ray, with the gear checked, land discretion, 280, 12 knots. Land discretion, 2 all right, here, new X-ray. But while, while Andy's busy wazzing about in this Spitfire, Mike, your career in the Royal Air Force is coming to an end. Um, and that's a long career, 21-year career, and challenging moving out of something which essentially become institutionalised don't you and you've got this camaraderie that you spoke about were there any elements that you personally found hard leaving the Royal Air Force leaving that all that time you'd spent on the Red Arrows um, after so much time the, uh, it's a good question I, I made the decision fairly you know a few years beforehand that there was probably nothing going to keep me in the Royal Air Force from a, from a flying perspective yes I love being in the service I love serving but I'd done so many good things with the Red Arrows that I didn't want to become resentful of the service staying in and not having the same opportunities. And that sounds pretty selfish and awful, but that's the decision I'd made. I left um, on my 40th birthday. So the way that the, the sort of commission works is you get options to leave at various ages in your life, if you like, various stages of service. And on my 40th birthday, I had this option to leave. So I, I made that decision and I'd, I'd been offered a job already with the Blades aerobatic team. So an offshoot of, of the Red Arrows. So set up in 2006 by a former leader of the Red Arrows who constantly, when he was leading the team, was, can I come flying with you? And of course, the answer is no, it's a military aeroplane. We can't take you flying. So he saw a gap in the market for a, a flying experience with former Red Arrows pilots flying close formation aerobatics. And the Blades were born flying the, the extra 300. What an amazing aeroplane the extra is. Um, was that? But that must have been again a big learning curve because you know I, I, I've I've not flown an extra. I've, I've had a ride in one actually, and the, the guy in the back. I think we, we were doing some sort of weird gyroscopic manoeuvres, and he he pulled up into this sort. Of, I think it's a Lomskovac or something. I don't know what it was, and he said, "Are you okay?" Because I'd gone quiet. I wasn't quiet actually. I was just laughing. But I was laughing so much I was actually laughing quietly. <laughs> but an amazing aeroplane. But it must be um, it must be quite a handful to go from flying a jet to you know pilots out there know. A big engine, you know, quite quite a lot of torque. Um, was it a challenge going from flying flying a Hawk to, to getting your hands on one of these types of aircraft? Uh, well, I'd, I'd been doing some light aircraft flying on the side anyway. I ran the flying club at Scampton, so the RAF most RAF flying stations have a have a flying club. So I was involved with that. So I had a, a pilot, private pilot's license, and I was running the flying club. So I did, doing a little bit of Cessna and PA twenty eight flying. I actually got my tailwheel endorsement as Andy called it the tail endorsement on a Cessna uh, with a, another RAF instructor a former buddy of mine from from Valley and that that taught me my tailwheel training and it was actually a very underpowered airplane to learn tailwheel 
flying or hill with differences on, which was good because it stood me in good stead. Because then you get to the extra, which has got a huge amount of power. Yes, a lot of torque, like you say, but it's also got a big rudder. So it, it does what you tell it to do. It was still interesting learning the techniques of, of operating this, this tailwheel aeroplane. But I went from being Red 3 to being Blade 3. And genuinely, the, in terms of the sort of sensitivity of the Hawk versus the extra information, they're pretty similar. My, I can I can picture right. what my hands and feet were doing in the Hawk to stay in position as Red 3. And it isn't a million miles off the same in the extra as Blade 3. So, yes, they are totally different in terms of their performance levels, what they do, how you can throw an extra around the sky, how fast you can go in a Hawk, how much G you can pull. But when it comes to actually staying in, in on station in formation, they're actually pretty similar. Well, I bet you if I was to step back and either try and fly a hawk in formation or an extra in formation, it wouldn't be that tidy from my perspective. But do you love flying the extra 300? It's a 300, isn't it? Or is it a 330? No, they are. Call? We've got five airplanes on the on the team in our fleet. One of them is slightly different. So the 300, the extra 300 means it's got 300 horsepower. One of our airplanes has got yeah. an extra 15 horsepower. So they're, they're extra 300s. They are really great airplanes to fly. They, they don't have huge long legs so as i say you can't get very far in them but what you can do in a in a 20 minute display is is fly tight formations and a very tight display and that's if you've seen a red arrows display you can see that it, it takes up a lot of ground pattern you know it, it you have to fly because you're flying nine jets around you have to sort of take up a lot of airspace with the blades as four extras it, it's much much closer so there's always something happening in front of the crowd and that's how we try and design the display i absolutely love it it's a brilliant little airplane the best bit about the job it's not just we are a display team. We are actually the world's only aerobatic airline. So you can buy a ticket to come and fly in the front of an extra 300 in formation with three other aeroplanes and go upside down in formation. So that, that is why the team was, was founded, as I said. There was this gap in the market that you cannot experience close formation aerobatics outside of the military. So that's exactly what the team was set up to do. And that is one of the best parts of the job. So I talked about how rewarding it was for air cadets to see their looks on their faces flying a tutor. Now, the day job is actually passenger flying. So put, put a punter in the front who has never flown an aeroplane potentially and put them a couple of metres away from another aeroplane and do loops and barrel rolls and all the rest of it with them. And and what's really great about that is that on a day, you might do you know, five, five different passengers. Every single person reacts differently to that experience. And the challenge is trying to manage the flight around how they're reacting and that's a really good challenge and it's so enjoyable. And, and also, I would imagine trying to make sure you don't have to do too much canopy cleaning as well if you're doing aerobatics with people that have never flown aerobatics before. That is very true. Yeah, we, 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 try and, we try and start it on quite a, a low level and then just increase it depending on how they do. But it, it's a, a fantastic experience taking all these people flying and, and showing them roughly, you know, roughly what it's like to be uh, in the Red Arrows. Well, if one childhood dream wasn't enough in joining the Red Arrows uh, this year, in fact, it was just last month, you achieved the second of these childhood dreams, another aviation first, essentially. What was that, Mike? Well, I mentioned earlier about having two childhood dreams growing up in Biggin Hill. Watching the Red Arrows at Biggin Hill, I wanted to be a Red Arrows pilot. But the other thing that happened every year at the Biggin Hill Air Show, because it was this pivotal Battle of Britain airfield, every year to close the display was Ray Hanna in, in a Mark 9 Spitfire MH434, which is probably one of the most famous Spitfires in the world. And he did this incredible display every year. You could hear a pin drop across the airfield. It was so mesmerising and so uh, incredibly captivating that I watched that and, and I had this second dream, which was I want to be displaying a Spitfire at Biggin Hill. 
Um, and this year, I got my first foot on the ladder to achieving that goal when Andy's story of Richard Grace phoning up to say, how do you fancy coming to fly on my Spitfire? I had exactly the same experience this summer when Richard said, can you come over and see me? We, have, we share Sywell Aerodrome. We're on one side, he's on the other. He asked if I could go and see him. And so I walked in for a cup of tea in his office and he said, how would you like to fly my Spitfire? And um, <laughs> after I picked myself, I picked myself up off the floor. I of course said thank you very much. When can I start? And uh, yeah, that was it. I got to got to get my hands on the, the amazing ML four hundred seven, the, the Grace Spitfire, which I've said that the, one of the most famous Spitfires is MH four three four, but definitely on a par with it has got to be the Grace Spitfire and the story behind it. You know, this this priceless heirloom, family heirloom that Andy's mentioned. It, I got to get my hands on that. Incredible. I just want to know how you go to fly to a uh, train to fly a Warburg because uh, essentially, yeah, can, can I do it? Is there any, have you got any slots going? <laughs> My phone's always on, by the way, if you just want to phone someone. <laughs> but, Andy, you've had quite a lot of experience in this area now and in no particular order. And a lot of these are, are Roman numerals, um, so I might get them wrong. Um, but I'm going to try and read through the list of aircraft that you've flown Warbirds wise. We've got a Spitfire 9 starting out in Mike Lima 407 that Mike just mentioned. FMT Wildcat, Hawk of Fury, FB2, how to say, Hispano Bouchon, is that right? Uh, Curtis Hawk 75, Brackets P36, Curtis P40, P47 Thunderbolt, a P51D Mustang that you woke me up with when I had a hangover, a Hawker Hurricane, a Harvard, a T6 Spitfire, uh, sorry, Harvard T6, Spitfire 5, Spitfire, is this 14? <laughs> a T28 Trajan, Yak 3, Yak 50, Yak 52, and a Percival Provost. I take a breath after that. <laughs> so, Mike, I'm guessing with that uh, kind of experience, not to mention Andy's um, CFI experience, fast jet experience, there could be few better instructors to train you to f- fly this piece of history than Andy. Um, how, did, how did you guys actually first meet on this path to getting Mike flying the Spitfire? I think that was when I was in the Reds and you were in the Fireflies, probably, Andy. We, we bumped into each other at an air show, I think. I was pretty pretty amazed by the Fireflies display. And I think it was a brief at probably the Bournemouth air show in the hotel. And the next morning, I, I went and congratulated the guys on and how amazing I thought their display was having watched the Fireflies. That was probably it. I think he probably thought to himself, I never need to get into an aeroplane with this guy. I mean, they're crazy. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. But when I, my experience of seeing warbird pilots, and I can think back to a few people, is that lots of them have got very varied backgrounds, with the exception of like BBMF, the Battle of Britain Memorial flight pilots. A lot of them have been in light aircraft. They've done loads of sort of, you know, tailwheel flying. They've done some aerobatic stuff in, in, in other aircraft. And they've sort of, and they've hung around the circuit for a long, long time, a sort of war bird circuit um and not not strictly true with you mike obviously a massive pedigree coming from your time on the red arrows time as a military fast jet pilot flying for the blades but it's not the same sort of trodden path as a lot of warbird pilots did that present any unique challenges for you starting out mike for you sort of getting your hands on this aircraft and, and for you andy training mike in, in how to fly the spitfire i've just the one thing i that has been ringing in my brain since this talk of me flying warbirds started was andy has said and and does constantly remind me that in the military you kind of fly by numbers you you put the airplane where you want it to be at exactly the right speed at exactly the right height and there's almost no empathy shown for the machine you know you tell the machine where where to where it's going to be what it's going to do whereas you have to reverse that when it comes to flying the warbird you are protecting these machines they've got to last for a long time they've already lasted an awful long time they've got to last even longer so you've got to treat it with tlc so if you're slightly off height slightly off speeds you just just 
just be don't worry about that you just treat it very gently and um just let it let it be where it wants to be I think you'd agree with that, Andy. Did I get yeah. that right? That's 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 certainly what, I, what I've got in my mind from when you started to teach me. Yeah, totally. I mean, I I, I couldn't agree more. I think the uh, from what I remember of the military training, it was very much you know you, you get you get a rocket up your backside if you weren't within plus or minus one knot of what you were supposed to be or the height you were supposed to be. Um, but ultimately, that was about delivering um, some spare capacity later on, such that you could um, undertake the. I guess the employment and the role under which it was supposed to be used. So it's not about flying the aeroplane. It's about uh, delivering the, um, you know, whether that's a weapons platform on, on target or, uh, you know, whatever role you're undertaking. Uh, and so really you want to try and use minimal capacity for actually flying the aircraft. Um, what we're trying to do now uh, for, the, for those guys such as Mike, you know, hugely talented military pilots, is just to try and take some of that spare capacity and put it back into looking after the aircraft and things like throttle movements really um, essential that we do that smoothly and deliberately, uh, particularly when doing formation flying. Um, in order to protect the engine and look after it, they are, uh, as, as I mentioned earlier, ferociously expensive, uh, so to try and prolong their uh, life is is absolutely key and I, I think the other thing which i remember mike saying to me was that uh, during the process was um he's probably been blessed with aircraft in certainly in terms of aerobatics that have been uh, have had a, uh, an excess of power uh, both with his hawk and his extra um whilst the uh, spitfire um, you know, certainly Mark 9 is, is somewhere around about 1,500-1,600 horsepower, um, so somewhere between 1,400-1,600 horsepower, depending on which engine's been put in it. Um, and that sounds like an awful lot. It actually is, you know, a relatively heavy aeroplane as well. So, And the profile of the wing is such that you start pulling G in the aircraft and it does lose energy. So I think one of the things which um, we sort of went through the... Uh, the process of was just to, to develop a different style of flying in order to um, to try and increase that energy and protect the energy and the aeroplane. Uh, so it's not uh, anything to do with ability in this case, just a, a complete uh, redesign of the style of flying, I think is, is probably fair to say. Yeah. Uh, Mike, would you say there are what are the sort of more unique things you've learned about flying a Spitfire, aside from sort of, you know, flying it in a sympathetic way? What are some of the more unique things that have sort of stood out to you? Uh, the limited visibility when you're on the ground in the extra you as a tail dragger of course the nose is in front of you and we in the extra we sit in the back but we weave when we taxi but we can actually still see a reasonable amount out of the the big bubble canopy when you're in the spitfire in the front of the spitfire and you've got this massive merlin right in front of you you generally can't yeah. see a lot so you, you, you're sort of sticking your head out of the open cockpit as you're taxiing um which is great because you then get these beautiful smell of of the engine and the and the propeller yeah. the, the prop wash is is well i would say blowing your hair about but that's not gonna happen is it but yeah it's um <laughs> it, you get the prop wash in your face they're the most amazing things and just the the, the whole thing that the the look of the cockpit the smell of the cockpit the the feel of the vibration of the engine yeah, this is it's a piece of history it, it's such an icon and it, it everything about it the smell, I say, the smell, the vibrations, the feel, the look, everything is fantastic. Um, it's it's not a simple aeroplane by you know sort of Cessna 150 standards, but then it's not a hugely complex aeroplane by Tornado standards. So it, it's sort of somewhere in the middle, but you've, you've got to know everything about it before you start handling it, because I think uh, Andy would agree with me that if it has the potential to go wrong 
pretty quickly and you need to know how to how to deal with it if it does and of course you're trying to protect this absolutely priceless family heirloom that means so much to so many people do you get a feeling guys when you're flying these old aircraft um of what it must have been like to take these things into combat you know a long time ago now but do you, do you get that feeling sometimes you're flying it and you're sort of looking down thinking you know this is i can't believe a i'm flying this thing but i can also bring myself both as military pilots as well into the environment that these these pilots must have experienced well i've obviously had the luxury of of the two-seater the the, the ml407 is a two-seater so andy did very well at, at sitting in the back teaching me how to fly this thing whereas of course back in the day there was there weren't any at the, you know, the start of the battle of britain there were only single seat spitfires and the guys would come out of their flying training go off and do this operational conversion unit, maybe get, if they were lucky, double figures hours before they were posted to the front line and then go and go and fight. You know, they were on the line fighting with 10 hours in a Spitfire, which uh, having experienced about five hours in this one, it, it really is. Uh, I do doff my cap because that is a fantastic feat to go and go and fight this thing um, you know, day in, day out at silly o'clock in the morning through to very late at night. It you know, really do, do yeah. appreciate what those guys did. One of the, what about uh, you, Andy? How do you feel? Yeah, so one of the really interesting things that Mike pointed out earlier was about sharing the experience with others. And for me, that's one of the really special things that um, Mike has, has yet, as at the time of this podcast, to um, to be able to do. But he it will do in very you know short order, be be flying passengers around in it. And the uh, to share that experience with uh, members of the public uh, is a real privilege. And I often comment, uh, both in the air and after we land, um, you know that that we're flying in a very protected environment. Um, we, we've got a um, it's a, a, um, a CAA set of approvals that's relatively restricted compared to what they were doing in the war. That's for sure. Um, and the weather limits, the you know the amount of fuel we have to hold, uh, the navigation uh, facilities we've got these days. And you sort of try to put yourself in the shoes of somebody who's you know in their you know, late teens or early twenties, who's as Mike said, got no experience at all. Um, relatively speaking, uh, no navigation, no fuel, rubbish weather at night, potentially being shot at. Uh, it, it is really quite something. Um, and I've had the uh, luxury of, of having a go in a, a Hispano Bouchon, which is as close so far as I've got to a, a, a Messerschmitt 109. Essentially the same aeroplane, just with a different engine in the front. Uh, and, and to be able to compare the two types from both sides of the fight effectively yes. is, is a real privilege. Um, and uh, you know, certainly the visibility out the Spitfire, I would say, was uh, significantly better um, than the, uh, the Messerschmitt. Have there been any scary moments, guys, along the way that, well, either for either of you flying these aircraft or uh, the, tr the training, the training bit, you know, is there anything that sort of stand out you think, oh, that was a, that was a bit close or I'm glad Andy was here to, to do that. Well, I'll let Mike um, decide whether or... that's the case and I'll correct him afterwards if it's, uh, if it's not right. the case. <laughs> well, I, 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 you sound like a CFI. Yeah, he, he definitely was a good instructor in that regard. No, I, the, the, the most nervous I've ever been in or around an aeroplane was at the start of my Spitfire training when I was just about to do my front seat, my first front seat. I'd done a back seat ride with Andy and I was just about to get in the front for the first time with him in the back. And I was trying to gear myself up to, right, how am I going to start this thing? Um, and he said, right, you might as well jump in and start it up and taxi it over to the fuel pumps. And that's all it was. Just jump in and start it up and taxi it on your own over to the fuel pumps. <laughs> and I have never been as nervous in my life 
because I hadn't sort of got to this, you know, it was going to be a couple of hours away before I got in the front with Andy in the back. And then all of a sudden, right, very quickly, in you get, off you go, start it up, taxi it. And I was I was genuinely really shaking. That was a very, from a nervous point of view. Um, from a scary point of view, in terms of did we have any any close moments, uh, there was one day where we, we actually spent the whole day at Duxford because we're based at Sywell, but Sywell's got a relatively short runway. And when you're learning to fly this thing for the first time, you unless you've got a stonking headwind right down the strip, it, it's not probably not that forgiving a runway to be learning on. So Duxford's a longer, wider runway, and it's got you know, the, the, a huge, wide grass runway as well. So Andy elected to take me over to Duxford for the day. I think we did five trips that day. And there was one of them where I was a little bit slow in trying to correct um, uh, a bit of swing on on the tail dropping after a, after a landing. And it, it started darting off towards the right-hand side of the runway when... Um, their very oh, very calm voice from the back seat said, "Okay, mate, just relax. A bit more left rudder." And luckily, we didn't go piling off the runway. But um, that was probably well. That's as, <laughs> as scary as I can remember, Andy. But you had the capacity seat in the back. What do you think? I couldn't agree more, mate. Absolutely spot on. And just going back to your sort of taxiing bit, you know, one of the real privileges of instructing people is to sort of see the um, the emotions that people go through, uh, and seeing that emotion on your face as you got out the far side, as you got in and got out on the far side. I know it was only taxiing the aeroplane uh, but I, I could see the emotions running in your face from like you know realizing your childhood dream and your sheer excitement wanting to pop out as well as like uh, you know I guess the terror of not wanting to screw it up or, or get it wrong uh, and the mix of that emotion is uh, is really infectious so uh, yeah no, he did. So, well, the viewers obviously can't see this because it's a podcast, but everyone here, the three of us, including me, and I haven't even sat in the thing, have got big grins on our face. I can imagine. <laughs> what a, was that intentional to set uh, Mike off on his own to taxi it? Was that sort of something you do with, with every Warbird pilot trainee? So uh, one of the problems with the Mark Knight, well, any Spitfire actually, um, they got a little bit better in later years, was they uh, when you run them on the ground and they start to overheat, uh, they've got an enormous engine. It's like a 27-litre V12 engine uh, with a radiator wow. that, frankly, is not much bigger than your car. Um, so it's fine at 220 miles an hour when it's in the cruise, but it just doesn't work very well on the ground. So they do overheat. So just being able to sort of uh, get some more exposure to that before we go off for the first flight is, um, you know, w- why wouldn't we? And by the way, I haven't got any uh, brakes in the uh, in the rear cockpit. Uh, and with, with, the, with the systems in place, um, you can run out of the ability to steer the aircraft if you don't use the brakes. So it was just trying to get uh, Mike as much exposure as we could before we sort of set off down the runway and open the taps up to full pelt um, and get all 1500 horsepower flowing. Absolutely incredible. Are there any things that you know now as Warbird pilots that the viewing public would have no idea about when sort of operating or displaying these aircraft? How much they cost. (laughs) 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 I I think you've said it a few times, Andy, that how ferociously expensive they are to operate. And yeah, the, the idea is that these things get kept going as a as a memorial to those who operated them 70, 80 years ago. They have to be kept going. And to enable that takes a lot of investment and is eye-watering sums to see how much it costs to keep these things going. So uh, again, I am I'm so grateful to Richard and Carolyn for giving me the opportunity to to, to use the, their machine, their priceless machine. How was that first solo, Mike, for you? Uh, the first solo is 
it's it's always special in whatever you're doing, whatever first solo you've got. The very first solo is always special. Your first solo in the military, your first solo in a Takano, a Hawk, and then your first crew solo in the Tornado, your first solo Red Arrows display. All these things are are so very special. But but for me, the most special so far, and I don't think it'll ever be topped. If I'm honest, is that is that first solo in Spitfire? It was a beautiful evening at Sywell, the sun was setting. I wasn't expecting it. I'd gone flying. Unfortunately, it wasn't Andy who actually sent me solo. It was it was Richard, Richard Grace, who owns the airplane. He just said, oh, we'll, we'll go for a, a quick fly around, mate, see how you're getting on. So he jumped in the back and we went for uh, some aerobatics and then a couple of circuits. He said, after we landed, he just said, if you don't mind, mate, I'm just going to jump out and walk back from here. You can take it off on your own. And then my heart starts <laughs> pumping and then you just think, right, okay, focus, all right, concentrate. You know, this is, you, you're very excited, but you've got to concentrate. And off I went. And, and I, I thought I was only going to do a circuit, but then he came on the radio. He'd gone up to the tower and got on the radio and said, oh, mate, if, take it away for 10 minutes, go and have some fun. So I did exactly that. As I say, it was, it was towards the end of the day. So it was a beautiful light over Northamptonshire. And I went and did my aeros routine in, in this Spitfire before then coming back and doing a running break to the circuit. And that was one of, I think it was my best landing to date actually, but of course there was no one to, to, to testify <laughs> that from the back. So no, it was such a special moment. And then taxiing in and just, I, I, I haven't still wiped the grin off my face because it, it genuinely is such yeah. a special feeling to, to enjoy this aeroplane that is it's so special to so many people. It's fantastic. Incredible. Andy, what would you say then are some of the unique things that you know about these warbird flying that no one else would know about? Well, just to sort of um, add to what Mike said there, you know, the, the privilege to be able to, um, to to undertake Mike's inversion on, into the warbird world and onto that Spitfire was, uh, you know, something that was pretty amazing for me too. Um, Mike's enthusiasm for aviation uh, is infectious. Um, and it's really nice to see because I think a lot of people can get... Um, uh, they end up staying in the area of aviation they're in and, and almost, you know, sort of poo-pooing stuff that's outside. And I certainly saw that in the military. Some guys will say, well, general aviation and civilian flying, why would you bother with that? Yeah. Uh, and likewise in the airlines across to general aviation and gliders to power and so on. Um, so, it, it, you know, one of the things I'm sure that uh, that made Mike so good in the in the Red Arrows, is particularly with his ambassadorial role, is that infectious enthusiasm and inspiration to guys into aviation. So um, it was really nice to be a part of that and to see that, um, you know, the sort of emotion uh, that he was experiencing for, for developing his own flying into the Warbirds. Uh, but also to see him working really hard uh, on that first flight and sort of slowly gaining the capacity and each each flight just, you know, kind of getting more and more comfortable with the aeroplane. So it was really nice to see. Um, but in terms of what, what do, do I think about these aeroplanes that other people don't know? Um, I mean, Mike's touched on the expense and to give you an idea, you know, insuring these things can cost, depends on the value of the aircraft but, and what you're trying to do with it. But somewhere between 30 and 70,000 pounds a year is not an unrealistic figure. Um, to, to overhaul and replace an engine, depending on the engine type, for, for a Merlin is um, somewhere around about 170, 180 thousand pounds, and you have to do that every 500 hours. Wow. Um, so you know, big even tires are, are you know many hundreds of pounds. So uh, and that's before you get into the fuel they guzzle. So yeah, it, it's uh, the cost of operating is um, is high. Um, I've spoken a bit about the uh, the overheating problems. Um, and certainly some of the more potent aeroplanes or with the bigger engines later on. I know the Sea Fury, for example, you wind that up, 
it feels like somebody's lit a fire between your legs as you're running into a display and you think that can't be right. Um, but it is, uh, it, it is absolutely. Um, yeah, uh, the other thing which probably many people don't know is most of these warbirds don't have any inverted capability. Uh, that's to say, if you reduce the G-loading below about 0.2, 0.3, depending on the carburetor setup, the engine will stop. And ML407 is uh, no different. Uh, it, it's very momentary. Um, but yeah, they, you know, so pushing uh, to, to gain speed or, you know, when you're maneuvering and, and coming back to the sort of wartime combat, um, that was definitely a limitation, I would suggest. Wow. Yeah, you wouldn't think, of course, and for anyone out there that doesn't know about the sort of air combat side of things, if you unload a wing, um, then essentially you can accelerate more quickly. There's less lifting use drag, there's less uh, load on the wing, so you can accelerate more quickly. But yeah, you wouldn't you wouldn't think about that. But of course, these guys were operating these aircraft in a combat environment. And I'm sure a few of them did have some engine stopping, hard stopping moments in the middle of combat. That wouldn't have been ideal, would it? Um Guys, if you could fly any warbird, I know you've flown loads now, Andy, but for, for both of you, what, what would you really, really like to get your hands on if there was, as if the Spitfire wasn't enough? You go for it, Mike. Uh, I, I actually would say a Spitfire and a, and a Mark IX Spitfire. That is the one that I've always wanted to have a go at. As I said before, watching Ray Hanna display his Mark IX Spitfire has always made me think I want to fly a Mark 9 Spitfire. So, uh, yeah, even though I've done it, I, I want more and more of it. So <laughs> I'm going to hopefully start sharing that experience, <laughs> as Andy said. So um, obviously I like a lot of, of Warbirds, like a lot of airplanes, but definitely the Spitfire has got a very special place in my heart. Amazing. What about you, Andy? Yeah, I mean, I've been really lucky, particularly over the last sort of two or three years, to have some absolutely you know, almost experiences that I wouldn't have even dreamed of because I didn't think it was even close to a reality. I mean, um, being able to take part in the Ultimate Fighters display team last year, which was a P-47, P-51, a, a Spitfire and a, um, a Bouchon, uh, performing close formation aerobatics in vastly dissimilar types, um, was, uh, you know, a, an honour and a privilege that I don't think uh, I, I could have imagined happening. And particularly when you look over halfway through a loop and you think, you know, there are four of three of my best mates there, uh, and we're having a we're having a giggle in in you know uh, some seriously expensive hardware that that's got such a huge amount of history behind it. Um, but in terms of the actual, uh, you know, favourite aeroplane, it's really hard to pick one. Um, I love the Harrier. I wished I could have got a bit more experience on it to to um, just feel a bit less like it was going to kill me every time I got anywhere near it. Um, <laughs> you never feel like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the chipmunk, believe it or not, is pretty high on the list. It's really well harmonised controls um, and it's a real pilot's aeroplane. But I think probably if I had to pick one, um, the Sea Fury was always something that while I was in the Navy, they had one on the historic flight. Um, and it, uh, it's just, for me, it's kind of the pinnacle of uh, engineering and, it, you know, the fastest single engine piston aircraft from from you know before they moved into the jet era and certainly you look at that bristol centaurus engine and the complexity of how it works um it, you know it's, and you know i was fortunate enough to realize my dream of flying that earlier on this year uh and, and it, it it's artificially limited now to 5.7 tons as a max takeoff weight um but you know back in the day was significantly more and yet it feels as agile on the ground as a, as a pit special that weighs 500 kilograms um yeah it's got you know sort of serious speed behind it um incredible airplane so i've been really fortunate um to, to fly all sorts but i'd have to probably pick the sea fury 
You can go off people, you know, guys. I, thought, I quite like you two guys before we started this chat. <laughs> but, uh, and Mike, I'm now going to sort of just, if we could just rewind back to the uh, you could be my wingman anytime comment on my Jeff's picture. I, um, I'd like to take you up on that offer if that's possible. You could always guys, come and have a, Blades, your... a Blades experience. Go to thebladescom I'm on it. <laughs> Blades.com. I was going to ask you if you'd like to plug any of the, uh, the companies you work with. Blades.com. The, do the it. Blades, www.theblades.com dot com and look at how you can come flying with a, a former Red Arrows pilot in close formation. That's uh, you'll have a fantastic day. It, re- it really is a, a great fun day. It's not just flying in the extra. There's other bits of flying as well, and then a private display with champagne at the end of the day. So it's uh, it's very cool. And actually, blending the two of those things as well. Uh, actually, we sort of launched a joint product between the um, Ultimate Warbird flights and the Blades, where you can actually go and fly alongside a Spitfire in one of the Blades extras. So if, if you want to go and have a Spitfire flight, wow. you can bring your family up alongside you in the extras and then go and do some aerobatics afterwards. So, uh, yeah, there's some pretty cool options out there. Oh, that sounds awful. Absolutely awful. <laughs> Guys, obviously, a, a whole bunch of it of amazing experiences here. And, uh, you know, I, I've been lucky to experience some fantastic childhood dreams, but nothing on the level that you guys have um, got to experience. What would be your, if you could pick a few really standout moments from your career so far, what would they be? Start with you, Andy. Yeah, I mean, I, I've I've got a few that really stand out uh, to me. I, I was really fortunate uh, to be able to take my uh, my old man flying in a Hawk back in two thousand and nine. He was still, um, I think, he was still full time service, although he might have just gone into the reserves. But as you mentioned earlier, it's really difficult to take civilians flying in uh, anything with injection seats, certainly. Um, and so that was a real privilege. Uh, I, I get a little bit airsick. He gets really airsick. Um, so that was quite what? entertaining. We got airborne as a pair and started doing some formation aerobatics. And uh, it didn't last very long. Uh, and then we, we sort of dropped into low level down towards Dartmouth, where we both graduated from, uh, albeit some decades apart. Um, and I remember distinctly as we went over the top of uh, Dartmouth, I, I knew that the parade staff would be sort of cussing at us effectively for creating a racket while they were trying to uh, <laughs> trying to teach yeah. people how to march around the parade square. And uh, yeah, it, he, as we sort of turn around, as you as you guys will remember, I'm sure 4G seemed to be the standard low level turn. Uh, when we got past about 60 degrees of bank, he was like, oh, do we have to uh, turn quite so tightly? And there's me thinking, well, we've only got Cornwall to turn round in. So, yes, probably. Um, so that was <laughs> that was an amazing experience. And I've now flown with him in a few different types of aeroplanes. So that's that's cool. Um, I mentioned the first solo flight in a in a Harrier. I think that's was that trip. It was trip five or something like that. You get loose on, uh, let loose on, on, trip, on this aeroplane. Trip three for the Sea Harrier, believe it or not. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and and then three, the yeah. first strip landing, I remember thinking this is this is not going to end well. Um, but, you know, just some of the stuff around the Harrier was amazing. Uh, that that first solo in the uh, in the Spitfire is definitely right up there. Um, and there's a, a quite a funny story about two... Uh, to Hawks, so when you learn to do air combat in the Hawks up at Valley, um, the first, I think the first trip is offensive um, with, with the uh, instructor in the other aeroplane sort of simulating that he's defensive uh, and then you swap over for the second trip and on the third trip they stick a student in the front of each uh, aircraft. Um, and basically just ha- you know, let you have at each other. So the deal for anyone who hasn't sort of done any air combat, and, uh, and you guys will tell me I'm talking rubbish here, but you, you can't, the performance improves with the lower, the lower you get due to the density of the air. So uh, you want to be as low as you can. Um, 
you want to probably carry as much energy into the fight so as fast as you can and you don't want to give away any turning angles before you pass each other uh, so you, you want to be relatively close to stop them um, uh, turning turning before they get there uh, so there we are at you know 500 and something knots each um, and uh, we're, <laughs> so we head down to uh, down to the you know the the hard deck as uh, is known as uh, oh it of, makes it uh, sound so cool <laughs> uh, of, I think it was around 5,000 feet something like that um, and they tell you that I think the bubble was about a thousand feet so they sort of do this demonstration of what a thousand foot looks like when you're on your way out to the exercise area and uh, I remember the uh, the instructors. So we sort of, you know, the, the the horns come out, and off you go, and you put him just off to one side. And we reckon we the instructors reckon we were sort of just over a hundred feet from each other as we went past at just over a thousand knots of closure, uh, which Mike's obviously used to from the sort of synchro pair stuff. But uh, we we sort of. We stopped that fight and they said, no, no, that's that's not acceptable. Let's try that again. But it was uh, yeah, an amazing, amazing thing. Um, you still pass a trip. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I think I'm going to, I, I, want to, I want to own up to one thing. I don't think I've ever told anyone this. We had one extra trip at RAF Valley as Navy um, students. And it was basically go up and do what you want. And I just thought, well, you had to plan something. But I thought, I want to see how high this thing goes from as far as I can go if I just go vertical <laughs> so if we went at 500 plus knots I'll just pull into the vertical into this stratus layer I knew it wasn't very thick from the picture that the Metman shows you in the morning popped out the top of this thing still going vertical going through about 10,000 feet uh, straight between two hawks in battle formation <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking, oh Christ! I hope no one's seen me. Uh, very stupid. Don't do that if you're listening at home, children. It all ended fine. <laughs> Any other standout moments? For uh, just uh, another couple. I could go on for ages, but um, I, I attended a lecture in um, or a talk by Eric Winkle Brown back in 2014. Uh, quite a famous naval test pilot. Uh, he must very. have been in his. Um, I guess he must have been in his early 90s, maybe late 80s. Um, uh, and that talk was absolutely mesmerising uh, as a, an aviation enthusiasm uh, enthusiast, and and as as somebody who was you know getting on in their years, he could remember stuff like exacting figures about aeroplanes that had come as random questions from the crowd. Um, you know exactly what the sweet spot, spot in terms of Mach numbers was and the operating bands and absolutely remarkable and and um if you haven't read some of his books then uh you know just some mind-blowing stuff in there the most carrier landings far uh, by Incredible. far of anybody on the planet and i think the americans put somebody um specifically up to the task to beat it uh, and didn't get anywhere close um and you know by far the number of most number of types flown 400 and high 400s i think um off the top of my head so incredible that was a really inspirational yeah. talk for me. Um, and probably the last one I'll mention is just the, the first first landing. I was lucky enough to fly uh, another icon, the, the 747-400, um, and, and my first trip down to, uh, to Cape Town in that. Um, and I just remember they sort of tell you in the simulator and so on about your first landing, and it's going to feel a bit weird because you are so high off the ground. And particularly when you're in the, uh, you know, the, the kind of approach attitude with, with the, high, the nose high up in the air. And I remember vaguely hearing the 50-foot call out, but thinking, dis almost dismissing it out of hand, thinking that can't be right. Um, <laughs> yeah. and, and I sort of, at 30 feet, it, you know, it, it gives you another call out. And I remember thinking, oh, Christ, I better flare. And I, I, 
I mean, it actually worked out okay, as it turned out. But um, yeah, that's pretty nerve wracking with 300 and something people behind you and your, your first crack at it is, um, you know, obviously under the tutelage of a, a very experienced training captain and with a safety pilot on board. But uh, yeah, that's quite a special moment as well. So just a few standout moments there. <laughs> yeah, very, very fortunate with lots of different things, uh, you know, in my aviation career so far. Um, so, yeah. What about you, Mike? What would you say your standout moments have been? We've talked about the the, the flyover of the Olympics. Yeah, uh, and, and uh, I mean there are there are genuinely are dozens and dozens from the time in the Red Arrows. I mean, it, there it's such a privilege to be doing things that you know, you could only dream of doing, and and I I, I got to do a lot. I'll, I'll probably come back to the Red Arrows. Thinking about frontline time, yeah, you know, I did a tour, an exercise in India um, as a, a I was on Treble One Squadron on the tornado, but I was guesting with. Uh, 43 squadron who went out there on a on a tour and they asked uh, for a, a guest crew so I, went, I was very lucky to do that and I, I did some 1v1 combat Andy's been talking about combat um, against a an Indian Mirage 2000 pilot now the Mirage 2000 again, oh, wow. against a Tornado it's a F3 exactly it's a very capable <laughs> yeah. airplane and the F3 wasn't so great in this sort of um, what we call BFM basic fighter manoeuvres it was it was a good interceptor not such a good Dogfighter. I hate the term dogfighting, but not not quite such a good dogfighter. So we went up to do this one v one combat with the this guy, and he was a, a wing commander in the Indian Air Force, a very experienced guy. In fact, he was the boss of their Top Gun school, so he knew what he was wow. doing. And of course, these guys have got a very different mentality um, to operating airplanes, given the, the current political situation in in that area of the world. So we started off, and I was behind this guy. So what's known as offensive. So I started the fight behind him. So I called the fights on with him in front of me. Um, he broke up and into the sun and I, I reacted. We lost sight of him in the sun, but within 20 seconds, he was on my tail gunning me. Yeah, he's, he's in guns range <laughs> within 20 seconds. And I, I remember wow, that flight this... so vividly because it just showed that, it, yes, there's the, the, the airplanes weren't on a par in terms of performance, but actually neither were the pilots in terms of mindset. You know, it was a yeah, absolutely. It, it was a real eye opener to how different people are when it comes to operating airplanes, and that was a, that was definitely a standout moment from my frontline time. You you said it there were there were loads and loads in the Red Arrows, but my my probably my fondest memory was getting to race Lewis Hamilton in his in his Formula One car. Oh, I saw that. That I saw your Instagram recently. And there was a, there was a rerun of it, and yeah. um, and he was he was caning it, wasn't he, down the runway? We we, we, we did that, a few Mike. we did a few takes of it. It it. It, it, obviously, I, I haven't stopped going on about it for seven years. It was in 2013, but it was such, it was such a good a good thing to do. And you know, I'm a huge Formula One fan anyway, and I've met Lewis on a number of occasions and been to a lot of F1 races. But it was it was so good to to see that from you know, from flying at 30 feet next to him with David Coulthard in my back seat as well. I mean, he was enjoying it as much as I was. And what was really interesting about that is that I one of the runs, I was at 550 knots or just under, you know, as fast as the jet could go, which if you can remember the Hawk, it's, it's quite a noisy cockpit because the air conditioning and the, the yeah. you can hear some wind noise. Um, so it's, it's relatively noisy and you've got a helmet on and which has got ear protection and everything. But I could still hear his car and him changing gear. He was in the pre-hybrid, <laughs> pre-hybrid car. And that was a great experience. But then moving into the Blades, following on the Formula One theme, I then got to do a little piece before the British Grand Prix last year where I had, again, David Coulthard in my aeroplane, this time in the front seat. And we flew low level, tracing Silverstone, over Silverstone, tracing the track while he was commentating all the turns and manoeuvres. And that was a, a, a definite standout moment from my Blades time. But I've got loads and loads, and I could talk for another hour about uh, about 
special memories in, in the well, Red Arrows. We might, we might get you back for some more special memories because um, there just must be so many. I mean, we could talk for hours on this, couldn't we? Yeah. But And, and of course, the, the ultimate one, I, I, I'm flying the Spitfire last month. That must be right up there, if not at the top. Mo- moving on, certainly. In the, it, yeah, that's that's now taken taken top step of, of aviation standout moments that I've been lucky enough to have. Yeah. To have, have you now been ejected from the Red Arrow sort of um, groups? That you, <laughs> Cadre, you, yeah, yes. exactly. <laughs> they're, they're all disowning you right now. I can see all these WhatsApp group messages now. Mike, uh, Mike Ling has been removed from the group. <laughs> <laughs> I don't give him ideas. <laughs> I mean, there'll be some there'll be some banter coming your way, I'm sure. Uh, Mike, you mentioned the uh, blades, so for people to get in and have a go flying with a blade or fly alongside a Spitfire, and you've also got some business endeavours. Um, if if it isn't enough uh, to be an airline pilot, a warbird pilot, a display pilot with the fireflies, what else do you get up to in your time off with with these other endeavours? Yeah, so I've already mentioned the Ultimate Warbird Flights uh, organisation up at Cywell, uh, up alongside the uh, the blades uh, up at that airfield. Um, we operate a number of different warbirds, both for displays and for passenger flights, uh, including a, a Mustang, a Bouchon, uh, and p- possibly some more in uh, in the near future, as well as, uh, of course, the Grey Spitfire. So uh, please do give them a consideration if you're thinking about uh, looking at going to fly um, with a warbird. It's a great family feel to the place, a family-run business, uh, and they look after you very well. Um, and there's some amazing pilots there as well, actually. And I, I remember when I um, started flying with them, uh, John and I were added to what's called the uh, the OCM, so the uh, the control system that we use in order to fly the, operate these aircraft under. Uh, and there were only I think f- and uh, about six or seven pilots' names on that on the books at the time. Uh, and they were Carolyn Grace, Richard Grace, Paul Bonham, Steve Jones, uh, Stu Goldspink, and Pete Kinsey. And I remember thinking, oh, I have no place in this uh, manual at all. Uh, really humbled to be, to be a part of that. So uh, some great pilots there. And, and of course, the latest edition of which is uh, is Mike, maybe your, uh, maybe your pilot. Um, a few other business endeavours that, you know, again, really fortunate to be involved in, uh, along with Richard and a good friend of mine, Jamie. Uh, we set up uh, the aircraft sales company earlier on um, uh, at the beginning of this year. Uh, brokering warbirds and vintage aircraft which has been enormous fun a huge learning curve uh, a lot of energy gone into that and uh, is going reasonably well so far um and then uh yeah we're just we're just um sorting out a uh a camera filming platform a high-speed camera filming platform uh, which we're hoping to put out to uh, some of the big operators uh, to be able to put cinema grade um aerial photography and, and um, filming uh, off the back of a, uh, a warbird to be able to film right in the middle of these dogfight sequences, which will be great fun. Um, wow, incredible. Yeah, and then and then the final project is a marketplace for spare parts, uh, which again, a bunch of friends of us have got together and identified a bit of a gap in the market there. So um, air spare, uh, if you need any parts or pilot equipment, have a, have a look at that. <laughs> I don't know how you do it all. If if I ever make enough money out of Flight Deck Wingman and a couple of other projects I'm working on in the background, I'll uh, I'll, I'll I'll check out how much your warbirds for sale are on the aircraft sales. <laughs> Good man. We'll, get, we'll do a special deal. <laughs> okay, special deal yeah. on a on a uh, Corsair, please. I'd like to I'd like to own a Corsair. It's all right. It's a navy, navy aircraft. So, um, all of our. F- 
listeners familiar with For Flying Out Loud will know we uh, do ask some non-aviation based uh, questions and I do want to move into that section now. It's called the winging it uh, section. Uh, you could be my wingman anytime, Lingy. Um, <laughs> are you ready for <laughs> your winging it questions, guys? Well, these seem to be getting more strange every every podcast, I think, <laughs> Andrew. So I'm not, yeah... <laughs> I'm not sure I'm ready for well, this. This is going to be this is going this is going to be a bit stranger. I'll start with you then, Andy, for your uh, winging it question. So, Andy, you've been given an elephant. You can't <laughs> give it away or sell it. <laughs> what would you do with the elephant? Where do you get these questions from, Andrew? <laughs> um, I've been given an elephant. Uh, well, surely the answer to that has got to be: I'd love to be able to take the elephant into a difficult business meeting, so you can just say, "Let's talk about the elephant in the room." <laughs> Oh dear God! Where's the stop button? How do I stop this podcast? Is <laughs> yours, Mike? Uh, a little even more strange. I promise I haven't been on any substances before thinking of this. Uh, a penguin walks through your door right now. It's wearing a sombrero, drinking a tequila. What does he say, and why is he here? <laughs> tequila drinking penguin in a sombrero. <laughs> <laughs> You've been to some wild parties, haven't you? <laughs> well, I, I tell you, I did see an awful lot of penguins in the Falkland Islands. So uh, I, I, when I was down there on the, with the tornadoes, we used to spend sort of six weeks at a time down in the Falklands protecting the islands down there. And um, I saw a lot of penguins. And there was one beach, actually, where you could, rumour had it, that if you flew over low over this beach, the penguins would look up at you, mesmerise and fall on their backs. <laughs> So I guess maybe maybe he was one of those penguins and he's saying, hey, gringo, was it you flying this aeroplane, knocking me over on the beach? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. Oh, dude, it's from, it, it from Wales, apparently, this penguin. That's how the Jake goes, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, penguin. Um, okay, guys, you, you've got away with those, I think. Just... Um, if you could step into my shoes now at the end of this interview and... and uh, Ask yourself something I haven't asked you. Would there be anything? I tell you what, a question I, I quite often get asked by uh, on interviews is, "What does your mum think of all this? Uh, how, how scared? Yes. How scared does your mum get about you going and doing all this to low level display flying and everything?" And it's um, it, from when I actually started flying, doing flying scholarship, and then joining the air force. She said to me, "I don't want to know what you're going to do. Just tell me what you've done." Because she didn't yeah. want to worry about what I might go and experience or what, yeah, she didn't Absolutely. want to fret about what I was about to do. So uh, that's always been her mantra was, okay, don't tell me what you're going to do, tell me what you've done. And that's, uh, that's, yeah, that's a question that quite often gets asked. Do you, do you know, I remember my mum would, would say to me whenever I was away on the ship at HMS Invincible, she'd go, um, could you call me and let me know when you've landed safely? And I'm like, of course, you're off the, you're off the coast of somewhere. Mobile phones don't work well. So you have to, you, you have trying to explain this process. I've got to pick up the phone. It's going to cost me a fortune. I've got to go through the main communications office on the ship. You've got to patch this through to some place in Whitehall, who then phone you just so I can tell you I've landed safely. Give me three rings. Mom, honestly. If... <laughs> three, three rings when you get home. <laughs> Actually, one day I did phone from Newcastle Airport where I'd um, I'd landed because I'd messed up flying and uh, well, oh, it's a long story. But I landed at Newcastle Airport. I had a coffee with Alan Shearer actually in in the Sea Harrier, and I managed to phone my mum. And the first thing she said, "Oh my God, what's happened? Are you okay? Are you okay?" You know, because she didn't expect to hear from me. But uh, anyway, there you go, um, guys. What's the one thing you wish you'd known at the um, beginning of your career that you, you didn't know? Looking back on it. Maybe not something uh, directly to have known, but I think 
I think you never quite know when things are going to change. Um, so for whatever reason, um, either, you know, you don't make the grade or, you know, the circumstances change and whatever you're doing doesn't continue anymore. So really enjoy every moment of every experience and opportunity you have because you just don't know whether it's going yes. to carry on tomorrow. So, um, yeah, be my, my Life thought. is short. Um, get out there, make, make the most of it. Yeah, yeah. What about you, Mike? Anything that you can think of? Uh, genuinely just how rewarding it's going to be. It's obviously a dream to want to go and do it, but then just to know exactly what feeling you get every time you're getting an aeroplane. And even now, you know, five, 5,000 hours down the line of, of flying single-seat aeroplanes, it's still rewarding every single time. And just to know that at the very start and how worthwhile all that sort of trauma and uh, stress going through training is, it, I think is... Uh, yeah, it's it, it's going to be worth it's it. It's absolutely worth it's it. It's going to be worth and it. And I wish it, yeah, and I knew yeah, it would be worth yeah. it because it's a dream, but but it genuinely is even more worth it than I ever imagined it might be. And I think right now, you know, in this pandemic, and there's so many aspiring pilots out there, so many pilots have been affected by things. It's an awful time for the aviation industry. It's a terrible time for people coming out of flight schools at the moment, put the heart and soul into something, but it will be worth it in the end. It will be worth it in the end. Absolutely. Go and do something else in the meantime. Go and get a tailwheel conversion. You never know. You might end up flying a Spitfire in the back of doing a tailwheel conversion, some other flying. It could just happen. So um, would you give any advice? And what would be the best bit of advice you could give to, to anyone in that sort of situation right now, guys? Uh, I, the advice I'd give to anyone who is wanting a career in aviation is yes, set your set your sights high, set your goals high. So you've got an end game of I want to be a skipper on a, a Dreamliner, I want to be a, a F thirty five pilot in the Royal Air Force, I want to be a Red Aries pilot, I want to fly Spitfires. Yes, set those sights high, but you've got to focus on the the closest crocodile to the canoe. I hate that phrase, but it's the easiest way of describing it. Is the, the the stage that is right in front of you is the most important. I go back to that that kid who asked me about whether he should do his PPL exams or his A levels. Yeah, you, know, you can't get to that end game without getting your A levels first. So you've got to concentrate and put everything you can into that stage that is staring you in the face, and then you can start worrying about the next one. Don't worry about the next stage until you've focused and finished the first. So um, that goes for now. The pandemic, you know, there are so many hurdles you've got to get yeah. through in the next twelve months, eighteen months, however long this goes on for. Just focus on what can you do for yourself right now to still try and reach your end, your end objective. Great advice, Mike. And what about you, Andy? Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I think it's very easy to sit here, or certainly when you're a bit younger, and, and sort of draw out a perfect uh, path through the aviation, um, through an aviation career. But actually, there are so many facets within aviation that even if, uh, you know, by all means, as Mike said, you know, set your sights on absolutely what the pinnacle of your dream is. But there are so many opportunities out there that you may not have even considered that that actually just by taking other opportunities in the short term might open up uh, other opportunities you hadn't thought about in the long term. Um, and aviation is so wide and varied. Um, you know, we you just look at the headline discipline disciplines and, and um, all of the different activities you can perform with each within each of those disciplines um and i don't think you could ever get bored of aviation if you just keep keep seeking no. new experiences and and the desire to learn really but i think coming back to what you said earlier you know you've got to build the foundation blocks so get those qualifications sorted um and then absolutely um just keep striving to to achieve the dream and in the short term that might mean taking a bit of a deviation away from it 
Yeah, I'd encourage people right now that, you know, especially young pilots have got this sort of laser beam approach toward joining the airlines. Look left and right of ARC. Go and fly, um, you know, medical supplies out in South Africa. Go and be a parachute uh, jumps pilot, uh, you know, out in Hawaii or something. Go and take advantage of, uh, of any and all opportunities you can because there's some great experiences to be had out there. Gentlemen, it's been an absolute pleasure. We're, we're two hours in talking. It feels like we could talk for several more hours. Um, but it's been a real pleasure to learn all about your uh, backgrounds, all about the amazing experiences, the challenges you've had along the way. I think, you know, both of you have had setbacks in various guises and still gone on to achieve these incredible things. Um, I'm just astounded by everything you've achieved. I'm sure the listeners are going to love it. Thank you so much for appearing on the podcast. Are there any sort of closing words you'd like to leave our listeners with before we before we wrap this up? I've just got to say good luck to everyone for, for the stages they're at, either through their training or careers. And um, yeah, keep your chin up and then just fight for it and, and go for what you want to go for. Yeah, it's a difficult time out there at the moment, isn't there? I mean, uh, a lot of the airlines are... Um, you know, laying people off or, or um, you know, suspending people effectively from their what what is not just a job for them and, and the financial security of the income, but actually it's their passion and both are being taken away at the same time. Yes. So uh, as Mike yep. said, you know, just just dig in, find a way to get through the next, you know, uh, short period of time and hopefully things will blossom in time to come, I guess. Well, I hope so. Absolutely. Yeah. Thinking of everybody out there. But um, Mike, Andy, um, thanks again so much for your time. I'm really looking forward to getting this episode out there and I'm sure everyone's going to have enjoyed listening to it. Best of luck for your future uh, fighter, pilots, warbird experiences. I'm definitely going to come up and, and check it out. And I look forward to, to, to seeing it all uh, unravel um, on social media. And, and uh, thank you again for taking part in the podcast for Flying Out Loud today. Hey, Andy, can I have the last word? Go ahead. You can be my wingman anytime. Oh dear, I'm <laughs> signing off about now. <laughs> Cheers, guys. <laughs> <laughs>